Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that has current opportunities thanks to heroes and their consequences. I'm story expert and stunning woman with questionable morals, Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar and mystery man in black from Pulp Diction Productions. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the bonkers of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Daredevil. All right. Four color facts for Daredevil. I can't wait. <laughs> they are, I think, less crazy uh-huh. than some of the other stuff we've talked about. But there are some really interesting, like, uh, like I guess, metafictional elements. Like yeah. how he has changed over time. Oh, very cool. So originally created by Stan Lee and Bill Everett with some input from Jack Kirby... Mm-hmm. Mostly in the Billy Club, which you haven't seen yet, so buckle up. Okay. Uh, um, also, possibly in his original costume, which you will also never see on this show because they are way too serious for the color yellow. Oh, he was yellow? Red and yellow. Wow. Yes. Sewn together from bits of his dad's boxing gear. So. Oh, Okay. Now, you may recall that Everett's problems with balancing his workload and alcohol intake were the reason Daredevil was pushed back and the Avengers rushed into existence. Mm -hmm. But Daredevil eventually did see publication in Shock of Shocks, Daredevil number one, (laughs) April 1964. It covered the basic setup, origin, and his reasons for crime fighting, all of Mm -hmm. which we more or less get in this first season. Okay. The show's origin and powers for Daredevil are basically consistent with that of the comic book, but there are two big differences. One is in character, and one is in powers. Now, the character difference is that comic book Daredevil's in-costume personality is really very much in the vein of wise-cracking acrobatic crime fighter, who might remind you of someone else that Marvel had had a great deal of success with, The Amazing Spider-Man. Uh-huh. So, very different tone than what mm-hmm. we get here in the show. All right. Out of costume, Matt tended to be a bit more taciturn and emotionally closed off, but I think this was mostly so that the love triangle between Matt, Foggy, and Karen could just get more and more overwrought. Okay. Mm -hmm. Also, here in a few characters, I'm going to recontextualize that as a love parallelogram, so buckle up. (laughs) All right. Now, the power difference is something that I think is suggested on the show, but is really very much text in the comic books. Mm -hmm. When Matt lost his sight, not only did his other four senses become incredibly acute, but he gained a sixth sense, a kind of radar sense. Mm -hmm. They sometimes describe it more like echolocation, like there's something about Mm -hmm. all the sound bouncing off of things and the way that he is able to take that information in. Mm -hmm. It's around him. It only Mm -hmm. gives the basic shape, distance, height, and stuff like that of the items. There are no colors and no details. Outlines, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. But it does make him damn difficult to sneak up on. (laughs) And it explains a little more in depth how a man bereft of his sight could be an acrobatic martial artist. All right. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I asked because I wasn't sure how much trouble you were having with that concept. No, actually, it made sense to me. Like, and I had a sense that, you know, he could hear so well and that that's how, you know, it was like like bats with sonar and all that kind of stuff. So I figured it was something like that. 
So, of course, you can imagine in comic books, they give kind of a visual element to this. You'll get mm-hmm. panels that are sort of in the style of his echolocation, of his radar sense, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we go back to the Daredevil movie, we won't talk much more about. They they make this explicit also and give okay. it a look, right? Mm-hmm. And I think they just skipped it for this partly because this is a very down-to-earth, street-level superhero thing. Mm-hmm. But also because it would cost money. Right. <laughs> you may be wondering, if Daredevil is so glib and funny in the comics, how do we get this extremely noir take on the character? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a long and twisty road that sort of breaks up by decades, and I will get into it. But for today, we're going to stay in the 60s. Okay. This is a time when superheroes could meet, become besties, discover one another's secret identities, and then accidentally make them public in a letter. <laughs> Daredevil and Spider-Man became heroic friends, like in costume, after each suspected the other of working with a thief of high-tech secrets. Uh-huh. They figured out the real culprit and made J. Jonah Jameson look like an idiot in the process. So, hey, <laughs> team, make Jonah look dumb. Really, anytime Spider-Man can get one over on Jonah, it's a win. All right. Mm -hmm. Daredevil, thanks to his enhanced senses, figures out who Spidey is as soon as he meets Peter Parker. Like he can tell they're the same person. Right. Yeah. But it would be a bit before Pete figured out Daredevil's secret identity. Mm -hmm. Once he did, he sent a letter to Matt's law office saying that he had figured out the secret and that it was safe with Mm Spider-Man. Except for the fact that he mailed a letter to a blind man who has a secretary. Karen read it. Yeah. She learns that Matt and Daredevil are one and the same. And then Matt covers that up with a zany idea. Oh, my God. Matt decided to introduce a fake twin brother, Jesus. Mike Murdoch. <laughs> so in the show, uh-huh. when he gives the fake name Mike to Claire, this is a bit of a nod to that. I see. Okay. They don't do much more with it, but that's that's where... They picked a name out of the thin air. It wasn't out of the thin air. It was Mike because that was in comic book Matt's fake sighted twin brother. <laughs> However, Mike is a cool guy. So he was always mm-hmm. wearing shades. Right. Now, uh-huh. he creates Mike Murdoch and says, this is the guy that's actually Daredevil. Uh-huh. There are some extra fun secret identity shenanigans because Matt remains himself. Mike is more like Daredevil is in costume. He's also still operating as Daredevil, but everybody thinks it's Mike that's doing it. Uh-huh. Karen becomes smitten with Mike as well as Matt. Foggy goes <laughs> deeper in the dumps. Uh-huh. It's amazing. Wow. And they do actually play this up as a big identity crisis for Matt because he's really you know, split his personality into his two different lives. And when all of a sudden he has to maintain another persona, not really like a whole other, you know, person, but like another Mm -hmm. persona with these friends, the lines get very blurry. Okay. So no one asked a question about why Matt and Mike are never in the same place at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, I have not read all of the late sixties daredevil. (laughs) That does seem like a really reasonable question. Well, you know, I like Karen's not that bright. All right. Like we're just I mean, at least the way that that I'm kind of seeing her represented in uh, the TV show. She's not that bright. She's sweet. Sure. Everybody (laughs) has to get. Okay. Okay. I will say right now. Stay tuned for other uh, tirades on this subject. But I think Mm -hmm. secret identities are 
very integral to the concept of superheroes. And but there yes. are also better and worse ways to do them. Mm-hmm. And basically making everyone around the hero into an idiot, yeah, is not one of the best ways. However, keeping in mind that Foggy and Karen are very much like, I mean, they're high-profile secondary characters, but yeah, Karen is never painted as much more than beautiful secretary for everyone to fall in love with. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, and Foggy is always suffering. We'll talk more about this in a minute, but he is always <laughs> suffering from like an inferiority complex. Oh. So, it, you know... It's, not, it's also, this is long enough ago, and Marvel's kind of finding its footing. This is still very early in its history. They hadn't, you know, figured mm-hmm. out all the best ways to do that. But believe me, there are definitely better and worse ways to do it. And just making everyone <laughs> stupid is not the highest order of <laughs> right. secret identity shenanigans. Right. Mm-hmm. But I will say, as a conversation you and I have had before, I can't think of anything more soap opera than, oh, shit, they figured out who I really am. I'll make a fake twin. Right. <laughs> and then kill the fake twin. And then right? kill the fake twin. <laughs> and then when yeah. I can't resist going back to Daredevil, they'll be like, what the heck is this? I thought Mike was dead. And Matt will shrug and say, I don't know. He must have trained somebody else to be Daredevil. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's pretty crazy. But I mean, they do share a lot of DNA, soap operas and comic books. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'll yeah. remind you that uh, uh, Stan and Jack especially came into the Marvel age directly from writing romance comics. Wow. Which are mm-hmm. basically soap operas. Mm-hmm. Um, and also kind of like funny romance comics like Archie used to be before it got super dated and then has since become again in the last 10 or 15 years. All right. Like actually good ones. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the 60s. Like you get the okay. feeling for what it is. You'll have to tune mm-hmm. in next episode, A-Holes, to hear about <laughs> Daredevil in the swinging 70s. He moves out to the West Coast, and a familiar face joins his book as love interest and co-headliner. Ooh. So, stay tuned. (laughs) Talking about Foggy. Foggy, as you can imagine, has been around since Jump. He was Mm -hmm. introduced as Matt's law partner and longtime best friend right there in Daredevil number one. Mm Mm-hmm. He has gone through his own ups and downs as long-suffering partner to Matt Murdock. He's got an inferiority Mm -hmm. complex. He has been district attorney. Oh, that's nice. It is. He ran as a third-party candidate, and everyone was surprised when he won, especially Foggy, because that's how Foggy operates. Oh. He's had a couple of failed marriages, which I'm sure is not helping that inferiority complex. Sure. And then eventually, he returns to a new Nelson and Murdoch practice. Mm -hmm. He is the one who has been lied to the most and most often by Matt, especially where secret identities are concerned. Mm-hmm. Now, they've gone back to basics for the show with an inferiority complex and unrequited love for Karen and making Foggy the sad sack that Matt stuffs most of his lies into. Right. The show will take on another angle that the comics have come to in recent years, and that is that inferiority complex be damned. Foggy is actually the most competent member of Nelson and Murdoch <laughs> and would be even if Matt weren't spending his evenings the way he does. I like that. I like Foggy's competence. And I think that that makes a character more fun when they're smart and they're capable. Yes. The inferiority complex is much more interesting as a character thing if it's Mm -hmm. not true. Yes, exactly. Like if Mm -hmm. if it's true, then it's not an inferiority complex. It's realism. It's just He gets it, right? He understands his place in the world. But if it's not true, Mm -hmm. then he's beating himself up for nothing. And the more we come to find out about Matt, we'll just be like, oh, Foggy. 
take care Aww. of yourself, man. Get yeah. some get some chamomile and a bath bomb or something. <laughs> okay, Karen Page. Yes. Oh, Karen. Oh, Karen. She's going to be quite a thing in future installments of How Daredevil Got Darker. Mm-hmm. Today, she's much as she was in the earliest comics. A beautiful woman that Foggy loved, but who loved Matt Murdock, while Foggy also loved Matt, and Matt loved Daredevil. <laughs> it's the love quadrilateral where nobody wins. <laughs> I will say that in the 60s, Matt did eventually come clean with her about his dual identity. She couldn't handle the pressure and bailed. When she comes back, it's for a grimmer and grittier era, so stay tuned. Wow, okay. Ben Urich, Mm -hmm. our first character to talk about that wasn't there from the get-go. He first appears in Daredevil 153, cover dated July 1978. You can Mm -hmm. imagine with that date, Ben comes from a different time than Foggy and Karen. (laughs) He's a grizzled, chain-smoking, investigative journalist for the Daily Bugle. Mm -hmm. There are no other papers in New York except for the Daily Bugle unless they want to have a rivalry between newspapers. So everybody works at the Bugle. The Bugle's the big game in town, though. Yeah, for real. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, Daily Planet, same thing. Who's who's operating Mm -hmm. on that level? Nobody. Right. (laughs) Ben is so clever that he deduced Daredevil's secret identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, parenthetical, he's not really that clever. Matt leaves that thing laying around like my kid does dirty laundry. (laughs) But Ben's basically covered every major crossover of the 616 that didn't happen on an alien planet. Wow. He was Mm -hmm. instrumental in putting the kingpin out of business for a minute Mm -hmm. and exposing Norman Osborn as the Green Goblin. He covered Civil War, which we will talk more about in the future. Mm Mm-hmm. In more recent years, his life has gotten weirder because he keeps getting caught up in the bigger and more bonkers stuff. Mm-hmm. The last time I felt he was actually like Ben Urich was working on The Pulse, a news magazine that also employed Jessica Jones as an investigator. Ooh, I like that. We'll probably talk a little bit more about that when we get to Jessica Jones because yeah. she mm-hmm. was created so far before this MCU concept and they went real back to mm-hmm. basics for her. So she's gone through a lot and some of it has touched daredevil yeah. and some of it has touched Ben and we'll get there. Mm-hmm. You'll find out about Ben <laughs> through the lens of more interesting people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Claire temple. Oh my God, Claire. Oh my God. I love her. She's so great. I love her. I love mm-hmm. Rosario Dawson. Mm-hmm. I have basically had the hots for Rosario Dawson basically since forever. Making her the heroic, normal person forced to put up with these sociopaths bullshit and making that the glue that holds Marvel Netflix together is wonderful. She's great. I love it. Mm -hmm. She is an interesting character, though. She's kind of a combination of two comic book characters. Sort of. Okay. So 616 Claire is a doctor in Harlem who meets Luke Cage. Just wait for Mm -hmm. that. She comes to help him after he's been shot, and she's expecting to have to treat bullet wounds, but he's just got bruises. Uh They become a long-running romantic item, but they eventually split Mm -hmm. up because she cannot handle the danger of being Power Man's significant other. All right. Mm -hmm. But Claire, for the shows, will grow into a space filled by another character, the Night Nurse. The Night Nurse. Night Nurse was a series whose first (laughs) issue is cover dated 1972. Mm-hmm. But its titular character, Linda Carter, yes, really, 
Yay, the Wonder Woman. It's Although spelled differently, so I don't know how much yeah. they were doing. Th- you know what? They probably weren't well, doing also, things Well, also, Linda Carter, I don't think, was that active. No, Wonder then, Woman was, was not until uh, mid-70s, so this yeah. was actually mm-hmm. just an accident. Is is it any relation to Peggy? Oh, I don't think so, but wouldn't that be delightful? That would be delightful. I'm going to headcanon She that. should be Sharon's like third cousin or something. Yeah, now, yeah, there should be a relationship. Since Claire there. Temple is the name that made it to the MCU, now I'm just going to be sad that they went with the name Claire Temple. But I also understand why at right. this stage in our lives they didn't say Linda Carter. Sure. So mm-hmm. Night Nurse happened in 1972, but Linda had been the lead in a book called Linda Carter Student Nurse back in 1961. Okay. This is before the Marvel era. So this mm-hmm. is when they were still doing those, you know, soap opera romance style comic books. Yeah. Over time, mm-hmm. as Night Nurse, she cameoed in enough superhero books that she kind of became a secret source of medical help for those who couldn't visit a real doctor due to secret identity shenanigans. Wow. So mm-hmm. both Dr. Temple and Nurse Carter have been all over the 616. They kind of get combined for our purposes here. Mm-hmm. But I will point out to you. Claire has treated an injured Spider-Man after a run-in with the (laughs) Man-Thing. And she treated Sam Wilson when he was Captain America, but had been turned into a werewolf. Oh, God. (laughs) Don't you wish that stuff hadn't been written by noted hack Nick Spencer? You would read that, right? (laughs) Sam Wilson is Captain America, but also a werewolf. Right. It's traditional, actually. Steve Rogers had a pretty long run. Not long like years, uh-huh. but many issues where he was Cap Wolf. It's a thing. Yeah. Cap Wolf. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You have to come up wow. with stuff under a deadline. I guess. So. That's how. I mean, really. And then it's turned, some of it turns out to be awesome, and some of it we pretend didn't happen. Well, I know, but I love that about this stuff because it does create this like really innovative space because nothing is too stupid to go in the book, you know, just whatever. Yeah. Nothing is too interesting. <laughs> Got to reframe that. Yeah, because I just take issue with Cap Wolf being stupid. It's wonderful. Listen, if you're living in the Marvel Universe, you are eventually going to fight Dracula or Werewolf by Night. That's okay. facts. All right. I take it all back. And if you get bit by werewolf by night, you're a werewolf. Uh-huh. Just saying. Yeah. Uh, side note, werewolf by night, I will never get to talk about on this show, but uh, he was basically like Kolchak the Night Stalker, who was also a werewolf. So, Oh, awesome. wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Got a few, got a few honorable mentions. All right. Mm-hmm. The older gentleman who is handling Wilson Fisk's financials. Mm-hmm. is Leland Owsley. Okay. Originally appearing all the way back in Daredevil number three, 1964. Leland Owsley began his fictional life as a financier so adept at manipulating the markets, he was called the Owl of Wall Street. Wow. Once he was discovered to be a tax evader and a maker of crooked deals, he bounced across the Hudson to become a secret crime lord. <laughs> and that's how we know this is fiction, because here in the real world of the 20 teens, we take our tax evading, crooked deal making criminals and make them president. Yes. Yes. Sadly, we do. <laughs> <laughs> that downer aside, I felt like I had to just draw that parallel. But that's moving fine. past that. <laughs> Comic book Leland had been funneling some of his money into power-creating chemicals and treatments. Mm -hmm. So, of course, once he's discovered to be a criminal, 
He takes some of them himself. Well, naturally. Now he has hollow bones, the ability to glide, which he enhances further with capes and other equipment. (laughs) His strength, speed, reflexes, and stamina have been elevated to near superhuman levels. He can turn his head 180 degrees around, and he can move his eyes independently. (laughs) Say what you want about that guy, but he commits to the gimmick. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I appreciate that. You know, you have an identity. You want to run with it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you want to be called the owl and then have people go like, what do you do? That's like an owl. And you'd be just be like, nothing. I just thought it sounded cool. Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> that is how you become guys like Rhino and the shocker. Yes. Mm-hmm. Another honorable mention that I think is going to get more complicated when we return to another show. Mm-hmm. I think, because you know, I am largely unspoiled for agents of shield, but I've heard things. I can't help it. Mm -hmm. Crusher Creel. Mm -hmm. Crusher Creel in the show is the boxer that Matt's dad Mm -hmm. boxes into the ground when he's not supposed to. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, comic book Crusher Creel would have been right at home in a previous episode of Listen Up A-Holes. Right. (laughs) He is an Asgardian enhanced human. Uh Uh-huh. He drank a magic potion created by Loki. Mm Mm-hmm. It gave him the ability to take on properties of whatever substance he touches. Mm-hmm. For instance, almost every metal, including the Uru hammer of Thor, has been touched by him. Uh-huh. So he touches titanium, and now he's made out of titanium. Uh-huh. He touches Thor's hammer. Now he's made out of Uru and can do a bunch of magical business. <laughs> he has turned himself into gases, mm-hmm. into diamonds, into glass. He has absorbed the energy of Odin's cosmic bolt. Wow. And he turned himself into water, which doesn't sound like much, except apparently trying to keep himself from drifting apart was pretty hard on the guy's mind. I imagine. Yeah. He has got the potential of incredible power, which is why it's good news that he's thick as three planks. (laughs) Because these abilities combined with literally any brain power would make him way too dangerous. Yeah. No, I can see that. But that's that's very much his Achilles heel. Crusher Creel is basically sharp as a sack of wet mice. He's not great. <laughs> not not great in the thinking area. Right. Our last honorable mention is Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the Kingpin. Uh-huh. Now, I know they bring Fisk in during this rash of episodes, but I've gone on a pretty long tear of four-color facts already. Yes. So mm-hmm. just like the show itself, I'm going to make you wait way too long to tell you anything about Wilson Fisk. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. I look forward to hearing that possibly in our next episodes for Color Facts. Oh, um, we'll see. Right. Edge of your hope. seats. I can only hope. All right. Daredevil Season 1 is the first of the Netflix MCU television shows and was created by, I was delighted to discover, Drew Goddard, who wrote for three of my favorite shows of all time, Buffy, Angel, and lost. So this is high quality like writing happening here. Um, I have been listening to you long enough that I knew that was a, a little Easter egg you were going to discover and be delighted by. I was delighted. I didn't know. All I heard about Daredevil is that it was horribly violent and I wasn't going to be able to watch it. People told me not to watch it because I have such a, a really difficult reaction to violence, which we will discuss later in this episode. Um, yeah, they but weren't I wrong. Know, right? I didn't know that it was written by Drew Goddard or I probably would have would have watched it earlier. Um, Goddard also wrote some really good movies he wrote cabin in the woods with joss whedon which is one of the only horror movies that i actually like although i will never watch it again because it was horrifying um which of course was the intent he also wrote cloverfield which i hated although i have to admit 
as I recall, was legit storytelling. So I got to let it go. It just wasn't for me. Um, and he also wrote The Martian, which is the only man versus nature story that I have any time for at all. Although Andy Weir in his book did set up the reason why The Martian works. So I'm going to let that go. I'll have that discussion someday on how story works. Um, we we so should invite my son because I have seen The Martian 7,000 times and he's oh, the reason. Yeah. Oh, he is preparing yeah. for the future. <laughs> All right. Well, good for him. I think it is it's a sacred good to text, plan, especially considering who our president is. All right. So going into Daredevil, due to the Goddard connection, my expectations were pretty high. Although Goddard's work, while I respect it, it's good quality writing tends to be a little dark for my taste which yeah. is why I watch all of his stuff but I do it you know with a bottle of scotch and just prepare to be in the fetal position for three hours afterward but also he brought one of my favorite TV writers of all time Doug Petrie on for a handful of episodes across both seasons I am so super excited about this Doug Petrie is also a co-executive producer and many of the writers on the show are also producers which is a trend that I'm really really liking I see that a lot more often now in these television shows and I absolutely love it I think it's a great idea like many of the Netflix series Daredevil drops the whole season at once so it's completely bingeable which I really love and I will say a thing I appreciate yes both because I'm bad at binging but also because I, I really appreciate serialized storytelling they do a good job with cliffhangers yeah mm -hmm. each episode does feel like its own discrete piece of storytelling that often ends in a place that you're like but 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 what's gonna happen now what's gonna happen yeah, yeah mm -hmm. so i like that it's there but i also like that they threw those of us who are not good at binging a bone Yes, exactly. <laughs> Something to keep you going. Um, so one of the other things that I really liked um, in this is that we have Vincent D'Onofrio <laughs> as mm -hmm. Wilson Fisk, the kingpin. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio, here's a little bit of trivia, is the only celebrity I've ever had an internet beef with. <laughs> Okay. He, he got mad at me for some things that I swear to God, I never said on a podcast. It was about an episode of Law and Order and the wonderful Rebecca Lavoie, who I will blame for all of Vincent D'Onofrio's fans getting mad at me, said something about him and they attributed it to me and people came after me like his fans on the internet came after me. And I felt really bad because at the time I was like, did I say something? But when I went back and listened to it, I realized it wasn't me. Um, so it was kind of fun. And, um, and I, I love Vincent D'Onofrio, so if any of his fans are listening, it's it's cool. Everything's okay. good. It's all right. <laughs> We're going to say a lot of nice things about Vincent D'Onofrio, I think, yes. over the course of Daredevil. Yes. So I'm putting it on the label right now. Every mm -hmm. time I retweet any of this, and also you loyal a-holes, tag <laughs> Vincent D'Onofrio in it and demand an apology and appearance on our show. <laughs> Let's see if that works. Somehow I doubt it, but it would be wonderful if it did. Um, so Daredevil was part of a package deal for Netflix. They took on this one. They took Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist all at the same time, along with a series order for The Defenders, which stars all of them together. So it's kind of like this darker, smaller scale, Hell's Kitchen-based TV world following the individual stories moving into a group protagonist model of the movies. And I found that a really interesting reflection it's very very clever it works we'll talk more as we go obviously but i think it works 60 to 75 percent of the way i i, I kind of like it it's going to be really interesting i'm looking forward to seeing all of these but i kind of like that we've got this this sort of similar model just on a different scale exactly um, it's, but it's really clever to try i'm very impressed with the attempt 
It is. It's very, very cool. Uh, Daredevil's first season dropped on April 10th, 2015. The second season dropped on March 18th, 2016. And the third season has been in production since last year. And as of this recording, which happens a bit before you guys are going to actually hear this episode, the speculation due to a tweet from Netflix Thailand is that it will drop on October 19th of this year, which is three days before this episode of Listen Up A-Holes is slated to air. So... Yeah, so you guys know something that we don't know yet. But what I'm saying is maybe it'll be October 19th. I don't know. (laughs) Thanks, Thailand. Thank you, Thailand. All right, so we've got four episodes of Daredevil, the first four episodes of season one um, that we're going to be talking about. We're going to start with the first episode, Into the Ring. In Into the Ring, we are introduced to a blind attorney who is unassuming everyman Matt Murdock by day, kick-ass vigilante Daredevil by night. Despite his blindness, or maybe because of it, Murdoch is proving himself to be a thorn in the side of a particularly brutal Hell's Kitchen crime syndicate and its unnamed spokesperson, who I will call Creepo during this episode of Listen Up A-Holes because it really fits. Matt and his partner, Foggy Nelson, are opening up their new law practice. Their first case, a secretary named Karen who wakes up covered in blood next to the dead body of the guy she had drinks with the night before. She, of course, has no memory of what happened, but is pretty sure she didn't kill the guy. Matt knows she's innocent because he can hear her heartbeat. It's a thing, don't question it. Also, it's straight from the 616, and it's part of how the real lie detector works, so just like it, Lonnie. (laughs) So you can tell who wrote that part of the summary. Anyway, Karen has evidence of her former employer's shady dealings and is attacked while trying to retrieve that evidence from her apartment. A masked man with a scarf over his eyes with Matt's voice build and blindness shows up to save her, and Karen has no idea who he is. Well, whatever. She's pretty. The hero takes the evidence, has the story printed, and gets the crime syndicate off Karen's back. And to pay Matt and Foggy back for their legal help, and because she's out of a job, Karen offers to be the new secretary at Murdoch and Nelson and a family is born oh and there are a bunch of flashbacks about Matt's childhood how he lost his eyesight saving a grown man in an accident and his dad was a boxer yada yada (laughs) whatever into the ring was written by drew goddard and directed by phil abraham and joshua what'd you think about this episode i have not watched daredevil since it was brand new Mm -hmm. and i had forgotten how well put together this thing is it really is and so This is a great first episode, Mm -hmm. and I want to talk to you more about the flashbacks when we get to them, because I know that they bother you, and they are, I would guess, about 30% of this episode, probably. It was a lot of this episode, and let's go ahead. Let's start with the flashbacks. I think that's great. Um, I am not a fan of flashbacks because typically they are used as a a weak device because a writer wants to tell you all the backstory of a character um, to explain how they are or whatever, but it's not a story. It's just kind of we stop the story. We go back in time. We're like, oh, look at that he lost his eyesight okay um and then we come back into the now and it doesn't they don't reflect on each other the two sides of the story don't reflect on each other now flashbacks can work in um in circumstances like lost right in lost we split our story into two stories one in the past one in the present and they reflect on each other so that's a story structure where actually the going back and forth in time is justified you know and it makes sense when it's simply a way of like kind of tacking on the backstory in to the current story. Um, I don't think it's necessary. It kills your momentum 
in the current narrative. And it's also not a narrative. It's just tacking on that, that info dump, basically. We want to know these things. So we go back in time so that we can get a sense of, you know, his dad and how he lost his eyesight and all of that kind of stuff. And it's just not necessary. So I am not a fan of the flashbacks. Um, we get the fewer and fewer as we move forward, at least in these four episodes. I have not seen, we're doing a reversal of the <laughs> Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. dynamic that we had where I've seen everything and Joshua hadn't seen anything. It's reversed here. I have not watched Daredevil up until now. I have only seen these first four episodes that we're talking about today. So, I mean, I think, I don't know, are we going to spend as much time in the flashbacks as we move forward? I think it will be less time as we go forward. And I think <laughs> that generally it will be with greater effect. Okay. All right. I think you see in these episodes that when we flash back to Matt observing what his dad does, that's mm -hmm. usually reflected in what Matt chooses to do in the present. Yeah. I don't not, know. Not so much in the first one. The first one has a lot of backstory, which yeah. I will get to because I have a question for you about this. But Okay. I mean, just your feelings on two things you don't love colliding in a way. Right. But, <laughs> but so I do think that the mirroring of Matt's choices in the present with what, you know, his only real model for manhood in the mm -hmm. past is a legitimate use of the flashbacks i don't know see not in the first episode <laughs> right but, but even that is an explanatory device not a narrative device you know like it's not part of the narrative it's you know it may explain why he's making that choice but i don't know i mean i will withhold you know some of my judgment not all like maybe 40 percent of my judgment <laughs> well i like it when it rhymes like that you know yes. like I, I get you and i think it's better i agree mm -hmm. with you that it's better when the flashbacks reflect on the present day narrative more or are tied directly yeah. to it or in have, some way. They have a narrative that that uh, yes. of their own that also reflects on the narrative that we're doing so that once you get like Lost did this beautifully, once you get the full story, they kind of harmonize there at the end and yes. it's really, really nice. I'm not seeing that here yet. It is possible that, that you know, that I don't all think the you're flashbacks... Okay, all right. Cause I don't it, I don't think it's gonna get that tight. So it feels to me like cheap origin explanation stuff and I'm I'm not a fan of it. I think that everything that they've done in this episode they did well. The scenes themselves that are in the flashbacks are nicely written, but they're just not part of a greater narrative. And for me, I find flashbacks to be kind of the retreat of the of the insecure writer. So yeah. I don't really tend to care for them that much, but I'll live with it. It's not the, the, at least the scenes themselves are well done. And so I'll give them that. I don't like the overall lack of a narrative that they have. They are very explanatory in nature, um, but, but they're well done. Like in the moment, you know, it's, it's, it's nicely done. I suggest to you, mm -hmm. and this may not make you like them anymore, but yes. I suggest to you that this is a elegant or at least as elegant as you can hope for dealing with not doing an origin story. Uh, maybe. Although I don't know that we need that much. I don't know. Anyway, no, that's just me. Yeah. No, I think you're okay. I know from years of reading stuff how important Matt's dad is to who Matt becomes. Yes. And I mm -hmm. think that they are going to continue banging that drum throughout this, at least this first season, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I don't necessarily say that to make you love the flashbacks, but I get it, right? Mm -hmm. And in the case of with superhero stories, I think 
to our detriment now, a, a situation has been created where people expect an origin. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I don't want to do an origin episode or God help me an entire season that's an origin. It's basically like prologue. I like that he, they don't do that, that he's already Daredevil when we start. I think that that's great. But they, the expectation is there. Yeah, we'll come back yeah. to this at the end of the season, and then I'll, I'll okay. you know, see what my opinion overall is. But but so far, I really didn't like them, especially in this opening episode. No, I, they're very heavy in this opening they episode. Are. Yeah, they are. A lighter touch with the flashbacks might not have bothered me so much. Ooh, okay. Again, put a pin in this. I All don't right. think you should expect that in this season. But all right, it's we'll cool. come back to that. We'll just, come back just to go, that. Be prepared. <laughs> One of the other things I wanted to talk about, and, you know, you having like a a broader understanding of this, I understand we don't want to spoil, but so we open with, you know, like he's in the confessional, he's talking to the priest, he's, you know, he's so, so sorry, he has sinned, blah, 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 Um, you know, and we're getting kind of this theme of guilt and penance, but he's stopping bad people from hurting innocent people. And... What does he feel so guilty about? Like, I, 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 that's one of the things, like, I don't like guilt as a, a kind of a vulnerability marker, you know, for, for characters when it's not really warranted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do get this one thing he says to Claire a little bit later. I think it's in the next episode where he says, you know, I like it. And it doesn't appear in any way that he actually does. So I'm not sure that I necessarily believe that. Um, so I guess my question for you is, in these four episodes, we don't really get an answer about what he feels so bad about. But my general question for you is... Is this, you know, like guilt, self-flagellation, self-loathing, is it justified by what we're going to discover about Matt throughout the throughout the season? I think, okay, this this is not the non-answer that it's meant to be. Okay. <laughs> but I'm going to I'm going to say that that's another one we should put a pin in and I want okay. your opinion when we get to the end. All Here's right. Here's why I say that. Mm-hmm. I understand why that's here. Mm-hmm. Because of comic book things. Mm-hmm. It's from the time that I will eventually talk about when Daredevil got grimmer and grittier. Right. And it mm-hmm. does make sense in that context. Okay. And I think that a portion of that gets into the show, but I don't think it gets into the show as whole cloth as they had it in the comic books. Okay. So so it's I do think it makes a certain amount of sense, but not to the level that it made sense when it was brought into the narrative that they're borrowing from. Okay. All right. Well, that'll be really interesting to it's see. And again, it's hard for me to pull yeah. those apart and answer your question. <laughs> no, I can see that because you know you're you're influenced by both contexts. But I haven't read the comic books. I don't know anything about the comic books. So when we get to the end of the season, we're definitely going to have that discussion. Um, we've also got yet another, you know, character with daddy issues. Um, yes. And it's not great. The daddy issues. It's a little bit. I just I feel like it's the. Daddy issues seem to be like the only acceptable way that we can have a man with vulnerability and yet still keep him manly. It's because he was a child and his, you know, role model is of masculinity was somehow abusive or failing or whatever, you know. Um, And so I just I find that it's not that it's not an effective method of delivering some vulnerability. It's this greater, you know, cultural context in which this is the only, I mean, if you've ever watched a Tom Cruise movie, they're just daddy issues, one daddy issues, two daddy issues, three, you know, Star Wars is daddy issues all the way down. 
It's, it's all daddy issues. And it just gets a little tiring after a while because there are other ways in which men can be vulnerable and still masculine. There are other things that you can do. And um, so I'm finding that like even from jump, you know, a little tiresome. But I mean, in the context of just Daredevil without taking that like greater, you know, that we've seen this a million times. Um you know, it feels like they're beating that drum a little bit heavily, even just within the context of Daredevil. I mean, at least for me, um, because I don't see like his dad was loving. His dad right. was flawed, but he was loving. He was not abusive. He took care of Matt. You know, I mean, he died tragically and that's really difficult, but I don't really get the daddy issues either. And again, without spoiling and, you know, it's hard yeah. to ask you this question, but like, is that something that's going to, be worth it when it pays off so to be honest i think that that it's worth it right here okay Um, all right i i not hmm. people who've been listening know that i agree with you broadly about daddy issues yes and i think we should come up with a different thing to motivate men Mm -hmm. that said matt's daddy issues are masterfully created Mm -hmm. i i mean i really think like his dad is loving and does not want matt to be like him. Right. You know, is is nurturing the intelligence that Jack doesn't feel he has, you know. Right. Um mm-hmm. he is different in the dad that we usually get daddy issues from in that he's an actually good dad. Yeah, he's a very loving person, right? Mm-hmm. And he's wrong. I mean, as I'll speak as a father, he's wrong when he thinks the best thing he can do for Matt is get himself killed. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. He's wrong, but I get it. He's going to go out a winner, which he feels is really important for his son to see, and leave his son a nest egg that will see him through life in a way that a living Jack could not. Now, we are going to see, this is the place where, yes, I'd say it pays off. Okay. We are going to see that Matt's lack of Jack and only Mm -hmm. having that, that, I would even say this is largely subtextual. Like, um, okay. it's there, but I think we'll, it's pretty rich. Is that he only has this, like, whatever he is, 11 or 12-year-old keyhole through which yeah. to see Jack. And when that's all he has for Jack, the man he makes himself in re- in reaction to the lack of Jack is very mm-hmm. different than Jack. Okay. I, okay. I mean, he has personal problems, Matt Murdock does, you know. Yes. He is not comfortable with his place in the world in a way that Jack was. Jack was fine with being a mid-level guy who lost more. Right. <laughs> it put food on the table, right? Like, he, right. he knew what he was doing. Matt's never happy with who he is, mm-hmm. you know. Okay. Jack saw that physical violence as a means to an end, which I guess – Matt does too, but it's a, it's a much less controlled situation. Like b- boxing is violent and I don't want to try and convince people who are opposed to boxing that it isn't, but mm-hmm. it's not the same thing as a street brawl. Well, no, I mean, boxing has rules and you have, exactly, you know, yeah. you, there are it's a job and too. there's some, yeah, I mean, but, but this idea, like, I think that where he really identifies with his father is that he can take a beating. Yes, like, that that's the 12 year old's keyhole. Right. My dad's right. tougher than your dad, right? Right. Exactly. Now, without giving it away, we will have another failed father figure. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, so that being an ongoing thing for Matt is another mm-hmm. way that I think it probably does pay off. A much well, less yeah. uh pleasant failed father figure. Okay. 
So all right, that's gonna be that'll be interesting. So we're definitely we're gonna have to come back to a lot of this stuff as we move through the season, and I think that's okay because they're they're interesting questions. And right now, because we're just at the beginning, it's all questions, no answers, basically right, at right. this point. But, um, but all I, right, that's that's my deal. With, like the big picture is, I agree with you. Daddy issues are overused, but yes. I think if they were used as well as they're used here, every single time, we would complain yeah. less. It would it would be less. It, it would be more like repetitive, but just less overall. You know, generically bad. It, you yeah, know, because a lot of times the way it is is yeah. An excellent example of a thing that we would just like to see less of. You know, yes, less of, but done well when it's done. And, yeah, you know, yeah. and here I'm not I, I'm still like my jury's out, you know, again, but it's but it's not necessarily I don't necessarily hate it yet. I'm just very wary about it um, because it is it is a little bit tiresome. The wariness um, is legitimate. Yes. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about our little found family here, right? We have Foggy, who is, you know, Matt's best friend. Um, he's the comic relief, which I think is a, a necessary thing in a show this dark. Was he comical? You know, as funny as it is, was he comical in the comic books? Um, that's a complicated question. I mentioned that they kind of started in a different place than they got to. He yeah. was always kind of the sad sack. Uh-huh. And at the beginning, that was a different flavor of funny that was mostly there to make the love triangle more overwrought yes um mm -hmm. as things got darker for matt he kind of started to fill a more comic relief light side space and mm -hmm. then of course matt's darkness spills out onto everybody and ruins everybody's lives you know yeah like it as does. it does so as it does, i would right? say mm -hmm. sometimes but that's also like harder to pin down because man the daredevil character has been through some transitions Okay. And took his right. supporting cast with him. Well, I imagine over time, yeah. I like Foggy. Um, I think he's fun. I think he's funny. He's a little too performative, you know, when we get in the next episode where he's like singing loudly and all that kind of like, that's that's a bit much. Um, but overall, I like him and I think that he's good. What do you think about the character of Foggy as, as it's represented in this episode? Okay, I'm going to try and keep it to this episode. Okay. Because my, my Foggy stock falls precipitously the more okay. the Netflix series go, honestly. Uh-huh. Um, I think he's really good here. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that he's the one. Now, this is not this episode. This is this batch of episodes. But I like yes. that he's the one who, or at least it sounds like he was the one who was like, I hate it in this corporate internship. We got to go do something else. Yeah. But then he mm -hmm. also becomes the one who's like, you remember money? Right. <laughs> I mean, he is kind of big and overperformative in the first couple episodes. But I think he mellows into something that is, um, it's still, I mean, it's still sort of bigger and lighter and so it stands out compared yes. to the rest of the show but mm -hmm. it really mellows into something relatively complex yeah no i i like him i like the, him in these four episodes i like that he is outside of matt's you know daredevil world that yes he, there's something about foggy that is that represents the the very thing that you know matt's fighting so hard to protect which is part of the part of the noir thing is you know you've got um a, a man who is corrupted by a corrupt environment you know and he is he cannot save himself but he can save others he can 
save the innocence in the world, you know, quote unquote innocence, this idea of innocence. Um, he can he can protect that while fighting corruption, even as he is touched by it and he is a part of it and he is part of the darkness. You know, he protects the light. And I think Foggy kind of represents the lighter side. You know, like yeah. the thing that Matt's working to to protect. And I don't know if that's how this is going to continue, but that's how it feels. No, I think it does. It does. Mm-hmm. One of the ways, again, we will dig so much deeper when I actually get to it yes. in the four color facts, because I just, man. But one of the ways that Foggy represents an opposition to Matt mm-hmm. is that part of Matt's guilt comes from the fact that he is a lawyer and a vigilante. So yes. he both believes in the law and subverts the law. I'm going right. to leave it at that for the moment. <laughs> okay, this is these are going to be really fun conversations as we get to them. But Foggy won't have it. He yeah. is ethical, you know. I like it. Um and so it's not and, and he's pretty good at not boiling it down like, well, obviously if someone's dying in front of you, save them, you right. know, and that Matt's situation makes that more complicated than it might mm-hmm. be for him, you know. Mm-hmm. But he is just an ethical lawyer. This should be done according to the law and the thing that you are doing isn't. Yes. Mm-hmm. And right now that's conceptual, right? It's a thing that Matt knows that that Foggy does to Matt just by being who he is. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. it may or may not get more in, in our faces as we go in a good way, I think largely. All right. All right. I like that. With some diminishing returns over time, but <laughs> All right, I'm looking forward to seeing that evolution. Um, so, Karen. Um, <laughs> I know. Karen. You have mixed feelings about Karen. I have mixed feelings about Karen. First of all, I like her. I like the actress. Yes. You know, I think the actress brings something to Karen that may not be as much on the page as I would like it to be. Um, we open up with her having, like, just the worst week. The you know? worst week, my God. Set up for murder. Um, someone tries to kill her in her, you know, in her prison, um, cell. Uh, it's just, it's bad. And one of the things that I was worried about as I'm watching this is that we go through this whole thing with her, you know, she's just put through hell. She's, you know, attacked in her, her apartment. Like it's a bad fucking week for Karen Page, right? Um, But she's so light and bubbly at the end of the episode when she's making them dinner and thanking them for everything. And I'm like, are we going to erase this woman's trauma? Because it's sometimes something like... We have the idea of fridging where a woman is killed in order mm-hmm. to motivate a man. But there's also this like trauma fridging thing that happens where we traumatize a woman. We give her a damsel status, right? We put her through all this stuff and it motivates our male characters to save her. And then once they save her, all of that trauma goes away. It's fine. She's just going to make spaghetti, you know, and it's and <laughs> like... So I was a little worried about that after watching the other episodes. I feel better about it. You they know. are handling her trauma, I think. I mean, I'm not an expert. Yes. But in a fairly nuanced way. Like at the end of this thing, uh-huh. everything's great. Right. The next yeah. day is going to come and she's going to be like, oh, no, this is all still a pile of shit. This right. is all terrible. And, um, and that's what I felt better about. At the end of this episode, yeah. I was like, so help me God, if they trauma fridge this girl, I'm going to be really annoyed. But I feel like what I saw in the first four episodes shows that moving into a much, much better place. Yeah. And she continues to make um, somewhat questionable decisions. Yes. Um, not not necessarily dumb, but mm-hmm. sometimes where you're just like, oh, Karen. And it helps to remember that trauma messes your thought processes it up. 
It you know? absolutely does. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. I think, I hmm, like I said, I'm not an expert, and I haven't uh, uh, revisited this in a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think I think they do a better job than you, you were right to be concerned at the end of the first episode. At the end of the first <laughs> episode, I was, and after that, I was like, all right. Okay, we seem to be doing okay. And it doesn't have to be. She doesn't have to be wailing on the floor in the fetal position the whole time. How they handle it, where she's she's inherently bubbly and she's trying to hold on yeah. to that light part of herself, but she's feeling herself pulled into darkness and she cannot let it go is perfect. Yeah. Like I'm that is exactly that is all I need. All I need is that it's not a trauma fridge. You know, and like yes. and that's yes. fine. That's that's all I need. And I like what they're doing with it and I think that it's really good. Um the only thing that I didn't care for is that it is so clearly Matt in her apartment saving her. I mean, his build, they, they got he's got the eyes covered. He can't see anything, but he has this right. I mean, I guess because she knows Matt is blind that yeah. she may just be thinking it's not possible to be Matt. But <laughs> I come want on. to point out to you yes. that first of all, secret identities are fundamental to the genre and we do not tug on that thread. Okay. <laughs> but how much better would it have been? If she clearly knew, but like pretended not to know. That's for later. And well, it's not exactly that for later. I'm not spoiling, but. I want a smarter girl there. Okay, Claire but here's known. the thing. Here's Claire the thing. would know. Uh, in that circumstance. Well, in we'll talk about Claire. In the same circumstance, Claire would be like, oh, hey, Matt, how you doing? Thanks for saving my life. She would have known. Let's put, let's put a little box around this okay. specific scene that I think is your main problem with Karen yes. not figuring it out. Yes. Um, she was nearly murdered literally one second before. Yes. Being choked. So she's blacking out. And slammed her head on the wall. Concussed. Okay. Yes. A man dressed all in black in a black apartment fighting another dude dressed in dark colors. Yes. And then they fall out into the rain. Also, by the way, her new boss is blind. Yes. Like, do not underestimate, I feel, <laughs> a good <Right>. mask. <laughs> And the fact that the man is blind. Like, it's a big deal. Yeah. I don't know. I I would have liked it if she had seen it. But, you know, fair enough. You make good points. That's not the scene where she should see it. Okay. It's it's too early in the narrative. And there are good reasons in the fiction for her not to get it right away. Okay. It's a very complicated situation right there. All right. All right. I'll let it go. I'm just saying I would have really liked it if she was on to him. Matt, listen, know. Matt's fucking terrible with his secret identity. You're going to get most of what you want eventually, I think. Well, he's also got apparently a a budget for black, tight, long sleeve shirts that are slashed to hell. Like every I, time you see him, he's got a new injury through a big gaping hole in his shirt. You just have to sign up for Under Armour's emails. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. just get flooded with coupons. That's sure, what I think. There you go. Yeah. There you go. He's got to he's got to get them in bulk is what I'm saying. Absolutely. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, all right. So I think for this episode, like the coincidence of it, that he is, you know, attacking these Russian, you know, human traffickers, which, of course, are associated with this larger crime syndicate. And he's starting to get a feel for like how much larger that is. And then Karen Page just happens to land 
in his lap, you know, metaphorically. Um, so far. Through, through Foggy's, you know, buddy, the cop, who gives them a call. It, you know, and so for something like that, that she's, you know, connected to this crime syndicate and he's fighting this crime syndicate and she just happens to, you know, out of all the lawyers in the city, right, he just happens to get, you know, get to her. Um, that felt a little coincidental to me. I didn't really care for that. I wanted it to be where he specifically went after her because he knew that union ally that there was something weird about that and like he was going after I would have rather had seen that but overall you know it's a minor coincidence whatever it's fine I just I just didn't care for it I thought it could have been a little a little neater and speak a little more to his um, actively going after these people and his capability well I have some I think pretty good responses to this okay you are desiring a capability in Daredevil that he does not have (laughs) Okay. <laughs> he's not a detective. <laughs> right. He's really bad at that part of the thing. Putting the pieces uh-huh. together, huh? I mean, that's I just never been Daredevil's strong right. suit. But that's what he does, though. This whole thing is about him investigating, trying to figure out what's going on with the crime syndicate, making the connections. Yes, and eventually. He does. He goes, but no, in this episode... He goes in, he sits down with her. He says, all right, look, so they kill the guy you're with, but they don't kill you. So that means they've got something. Then they try to take you out in the prison cell. And what is that all about? He does. That's exactly what he does. Ah, it's all about keyholes with Matt. He sees through the keyhole of her case where stuff is a problem. He does not see her in terms of Russian human traffickers. Yeah, but it's not about it's not about the keyhole. I think for me, like, and I, I think it's about the way you think. Like, he obviously has analytical, you know, mental capabilities. He's he's looking at this whole thing and figuring it out. So I don't know that I buy that he's not a he's not a big analytical thinker because obviously he is. I'm I'm going to say that uh, Matt's specificity in how he thinks about things. <laughs> Mm-hmm. He's really he's not an investigator like like this will be a thing that rolls out. Okay. And and I think that this is kind of fun from the superhero aspect, mm-hmm. because to lighten the mood a moment, <laughs> there is an episode of a Spider-Man cartoon where he runs out. He's teenage Peter Parker and he runs out with a bunch of other like young superheroes mm-hmm. and they run into something and they're like, how do we figure out what this is? And Spider-Man's like, I don't know. I just swing around looking for muggings. <laughs> And this is a big deal. Like, there are only a handful of crime fighters who are actual detectives. It's a thing that sets them apart. Right, but he's a lawyer. Like, you don't, without being able to make connections, I mean, that's what the law is. You find the connections, you find the precedent, you follow the whole thing, you figure it out, you find a way. Like, I don't know. I don't Living know. Living with I a lawyer, asked... maybe I am bringing some real life to this, but no. Like she's oh, not, really? I live with a lawyer who is very, very smart and she is not a great investigator. Uh, but she doesn't do criminal law. This dude does criminal law. I don't criminal know. Criminal law might actually make you a worse investigator because I've also worked as a private detective. So I can tell you, you anyway, it's complicated. Well, reality is no defense or condemnation of fiction. Fiction has to make sense. <laughs> it has to be what it feels like, not what it is. So I'm going to pull that out. Fair as enough. My, as the end of my argument on I'll this I'll swing point, around think, to the yeah. other thing that I think they do well here for coincidences. Yes, yes, do. So, because I think it, it does interconnect, um, mm-hmm. not just for me scoring rhetorical points. Um, <laughs> Hell's Kitchen is like the teapot that we're going to have this Tempest in. 
Yeah. And that's going to continue through some other series also. Uh-huh. Um, but I but I think they do a really good job of this here. Like uh, by the end of these four episodes, we find out that Wilson Fisk is, has ties to this community. He cares about yeah. it very much. That's why mm-hmm. Matt and Foggy are both there. They grew up there. They come back to there. And mm-hmm. while they definitely treat what is in real life, this relatively small neighborhood, like its own borough, yeah. <laughs> it's still, it's a bottle that they are all trapped in. Mm-hmm. And okay. there is enough crime going on in the world that mm-hmm. even in this tiny, whatever this, you know, the size of this borough is supposed to be, I would not necessarily connect personally mm-hmm. financial crimes with construction, with human mm-hmm. trafficking until later, which I think is right. literally the point of him getting Wilson's name down the road a piece. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that ties it all together, that there is something tying all of this together. It is, in all fact, right. a conspiracy and not just awful people being awful in different ways. Okay. All but right. he's on all a right. collision course with that because Hell's Kitchen is this tiny space. Right, because a pinball only has so many places to bounce off exactly. of. Right? Eventually, it's going to hit the same place You twice. may not love it. Like, I get where you're coming from, but right. but um, I, I really appreciated how... They kept Daredevil, they kept Matt kind of at the level that he would be. Uh-huh. Which is pretty okay. street level. Like okay. he sees he sees muggers. He sees mm-hmm. the human trafficking, the drug dealers, he the pushers. He doesn't see the the distributors, you know. Yeah, the big the big picture. There he is just no kind big of picture falls for him. Backward yet. Into it. Okay. But they still created a space where his limited picture would bring him inevitably in conflict with the big pictures. I, I like capability in characters, but I also like seeing them sort of pushed outside of their comfort zone, you know, forced to do something that even with all the superpowers that he yeah. has is going to be challenging for yeah. him. So I can I can appreciate that. And honestly, it's not that big a point. It's just for me, it's it's a fairly minor thing. When when there's that kind of coincidence, it usually kicks me out of the narrative. And Fair I don't, enough. I don't yeah. like it. Yeah. yeah, but I think it's okay. Um, so we've got these bad guys, and we've got this guy Wesley, who I just have called Creepo in my notes because I didn't know what his name was. So I just like Creepo. Yeah. Um, and so we open up with him, and he is this kind of sophisticated evil. You know, TV tropes calls it wicked cultured, right? You know, where it's this <laughs> fantastic. It's this yes. idea that like we've got all of these, you know, these hoodlums and terrible, you know, rough and tumble Russian human traffickers, and like, and he walks in with his, you know, perfect suit and his tie and is very you know everything is manicured you know everything is attended to um and he comes from this like you know sort of weird uh, higher class sort of space you know um but yet he is is quite clearly very evil and has apparently no human feelings whatsoever about anything um and we have this first meeting of the five families where they're all freaking out we have this mysterious you know this mysterious we don't say his name you know kind of stuff um so i don't know typically i find this kind of you know evil sophisticate um it's supposed to be antithetical to where you look at it and you say he's bad but he also has a really nice tie on we don't associate those things you know it, it, but it's become so used that for me it almost feels a little bit overdone what did you think about this character i hate him awfully okay now my reasons are a little different than yours mm-hmm. um i actually wonder at this point if that Wicked Cultured is no longer playing against a type and playing hard into a type because it's 2018. And if you have a bunch of money, I think you're committing crimes. Right. Okay. I mean, (laughs) oh, did your suit cost more than my mortgage? Cool, cool, cool. 
Yeah, you're definitely yeah, exactly. a criminal. You know. Exactly. Manafort. Um, yeah. <laughs> the reason I hate him is mm-hmm. as we go, this is my one big complaint with season one, and we'll see if I feel differently on the second viewing or if you feel differently about it yes. by the time we mm-hmm. get to the end. But there is so much spotlight on this guy instead of on the actual villain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially doing villain stuff. Yes. Um, they, I have always felt like they could have somehow introduced Wilson Fisk much earlier in this thing. Not necessarily doing his own stupid running around Aaron stuff, but like, right. let's just not spend so much time making Wesley cool. And he's not cool, though. Like, well, he's but you know what I mean. He's interesting. You're right. Yeah, not exactly. Cool. Just giving him so much time. Just putting him on screen so damn much. So much. Like, and, yeah. No, I don't I don't care for him at all. I find him really annoying, really flat. And honestly, out of the five families, Nobu's the one that I'm interested in. Nobu. And he had like one line. But Nobu's there's something great. about that actor. Oh, it, does he? Is he great? Because we haven't seen anything from him. But in the two seconds he was on screen, I was like, I like that guy. I don't know if I'm you're going to get enough Nobu, but you're going to mm-hmm. like most of the Nobu you get. All right. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how that turns out. Prepare to fall in love with Madame Gao. Oh, that's going to be fun. I like that we had a woman there for oh. crying out loud. Oh. What, women can't be evil too? It's 2018. Oh, Catch my up. God. I Listen, slight spoilers might be the most evil person in the room. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. <laughs> she's she's de- Oh, she's so delightful. She's great. And that is a high bar to jump because there's some, there's some evil in that room. She might be the smartest evil in the room for certain. Oh, I like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're going to. I like that. I, I forget because all this is now jumbled in my head and she's always kind of a secondary player. But mm-hmm. um, so I'm not exactly sure when it happens. But over time, oh, you yes. are going to love yourself some Madam Gao. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. All right, well, that moves us into Cutman. Cutman opens with Daredevil bleeding out in a dumpster from injuries he sustained. We find out later, trying to save a kid from the human traffickers who objected to his do-goodery and tried to kill him. He survives because of Claire, who fishes him out of the dumpster and keeps him alive through the night as he alternately shares his secrets and blacks out. After punching a hole in his chest with a Pez dispenser to relieve a collapsed lung, Claire tells him that she's been patching up both the victims he saved and the guys he's beat to a bloody pulp at the hospital where she works, all of whom have been pretty chatty about the masked guy running around town beating the ever-loving shit out of people. A Russian mobster pretending to be NYPD comes to the door looking for Matt. Claire lies, but Matt knows that the mobster is onto them because heartbeats which apparently are super chatty and never lie. They drop a fire extinguisher on the guy's head to knock him out so they can drag him up to the roof and torture him by stabbing him in the trigeminal nerve. And yeah, I get it. You're dark, Matt, but torture is really bad. And why is Clara helping you torture this guy? Whatever. The mobster tells him where the kid is, and Matt says he enjoys hurting people before throwing the guy off the roof. And despite everything, Claire says she doesn't believe that he enjoys hurting people. But Claire, honey, child... When someone tells you who they are, believe them. Daredevil goes to the Russian hideout and takes out all the guys despite cracked ribs, loss of blood, and the aforementioned collapsed lung, and he rescues the kid. Oh, and also, Matt's dad was a boxer who threw some fights, but then he decided not to throw one fight. He probably should have thrown that fight, and the mobsters killed him. And Foggy and Karen went out for a night on the town and drank an eel. And there's like this whole five families thing of evildoers in the crime syndicate, and they find Daredevil's do-goodery quite irksome 
Cut Man was written by Drew Goddard and directed by Phil Abraham, the same duo that gave us the first episode, Into the Ring. All right, so Joshua, here we are moving forward. We've got a lot of the same kind of stuff that we were talking about um, in the earlier episodes. Um, but we sort of open with this, you know, kind of end medias rest sort of thing. Like we, he's gone after the kid who was at the end of the first episode, the voice that he heard as the kid's dad was getting beaten and he was pulled into a truck. Um, he's trying to save that kid. He, he got set up, got beat up, and then we just see him being found in the dumpsters, how we open this. So what do you think about that kind of, opening in this episode did that kind of throw you off because it wasn't quite a connected narrative to where we left the last episode um or did you like it i liked it and i liked it even more when it didn't turn out to be a 36 hours later (laughs) i thought we were going to get that and i was so annoyed i was like if this is a fractured tease so help me god (laughs) i liked it because it really surprised me right like i mentioned that um these are pretty good not binged you know, yes. And the kid being taken was a pretty good cliffhanger. Like, you know, Matt's going to do something about that. Right. And for us mm-hmm. to come after he's already failed. Right. Is pretty bold storytelling choices for introducing us to our hero. Right. I mean, we had an episode, but this is like his first real case. Yes. Yes. And he's screwing episode- it up. <laughs> Right. Now that the episode is over, I actually quite like it. Yeah. In the moment, I was like, oh, so help me God. Like, I didn't trust the writers at that point. Right. Yes. Um, And now I do. So, like, I get it. Like, and it's okay to do things that are unusual like this. Like, once you know how to tell a story, like, you can play around with these devices and kind of have some fun with it. And I think that they did that. So, once it was done, I liked it. Um, I know you and I psych ourselves out because we think too hard about this stuff. Yes. I know it because I do it to myself all the time. And that's why I'm glad you came around to this one because I get your initial reaction 100%. Yes. Yes. I did. So I enjoyed 24 hours ago. I'm going to hunt somebody down. You know, I know. I swear to God. And when they do that in the next episode for like a five second clip that they just go back, it it drove me crazy. But anyway, we'll talk about that when we get there. (laughs) Um, We get to the bowling alley, but we go into these. We got a lot of flashbacks. We got the whole thing. We see his father throwing the fight with Creel getting himself killed. I want my kid to see me getting cheered for, which by the way is like really made me like Jack a lot less because seeing you get cheered for is not what that kid needs. That kid needs his dad. Yeah. You know? So like that, and, and especially because he threw the fight to make the money off of it. Right. Knowing that these guys were going to kill him and his kid was going to have to live with that. Like, this idea that his his sense of his kid being proud of him, like that ego, you know, um, oriented thinking is the reason why he traumatized his kid with that experience. Like, I find that to be I just I hated Jack as of that moment. I don't know that I love Jack, mm-hmm. but I really appreciate the nuance of Jack. Mm-hmm. Jack is a guy, I mean, you heard him talk about that. He let the devil out. I feel like Jack is a guy whose dad probably was abusive or something. Mm -hmm. And so he's got this very toxic masculinity approach to things that he can't shake. Like it's in his head, but he's also trying really hard to shake it because he is so good to Matt. Mm -hmm. And you can see when the mobster says, I'm sorry about your blind kid, but you've got, you're young. You've got lots of time to have more kids. And it's just like a moment where he's like, maybe I should punch him. Right. right? Like he is so 
loving and protective, like like Papa mm-hmm. Bear of Matt, that I can tell he's trying to get over that, but it's still there. I can see where it might fall flat because Jack is not our main character. But if I'm just right. like kind of pulling him out as a character study, I really like that nuance. Yeah, I I hate I, I love that. He it doesn't make him loves- good. <laughs> right. No, I hate how selfish that choice is. It he does, wants his yes. kid to be proud of him, so he traumatizes him by getting himself killed. Um, and, you know, the thing is, the kid is, what, 12 years old maybe at that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that's a terrible thing to do to your kid because you want that glory reflected, you know, from your your kid. Um, and, and obviously, Matt looks up to him. Matt never said a word about Jesus you lose a lot like he never like down or not you know this whole thing between them was it's not how you hit the mat it's how you get up right so the fact that his dad hits the mat a lot is not a problem for him because his dad always gets back up so this whole choice for Jack I just at this point I was like I don't care Jack's an asshole like he's putting his ego ahead of his kids well-being and I just I hated that whole thing. I hated the backstory. I hated the flashbacks. I could have just lived without them. <laughs> I don't care. I do feel like story wise, we probably could have lived without the flashbacks other than seeing how this stuff affects Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I don't love him as a father or or as, as a person, but I really like Jack as a character. Like, he failed in the end. But he had been fighting against his darker urges. And really, he didn't fail in the end by giving into his darker urges and beating his kid. Yeah. He failed mm-hmm. into his darker urges by wanting his kid to be proud of him. I guess. Yeah. And you know what? I, I, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's a good character. Yeah. It's a I good don't, character. You don't have to it love him. It just pissed me off. <laughs> I'm not convincing it's just you. Pissed but... me off. No. And, and the thing is that, that good characters don't need to be likable. Absolutely not. Yeah. You know, um, but that choice, I think, I think especially after seeing the way that he was so good to Matt and he put Matt first all the time, I think what bothered me about that is how inconsistent it felt with the rest of what Jack was. But characters are complicated. People are complicated. This is a complex guy. You know, he's got yeah. a lot of stuff going on there. And he's also taken a lot of hits to the head and he may just be tired of it. If we you had know? seen them in a little more money trouble to where he, mm-hmm. again, I think I, I'm fine with with it and I don't need to convince you but maybe maybe we would have like turned Understood it just it enough for you more. if they had if he had had a moment where he was like this is the only way I'm ever going to get enough money to yeah. get well, my no, son out that- of hell's kitchen Right, and that I could have understood. Yeah. It's just that I he was so in he there, but it's like not... it was solely motivated by ego. Yeah, I see I that's the trick I think is that I don't I don't read it as even mostly okay. uh, there is an ego there in that you want your child to be proud of you. So, I'm not saying there's yeah. no ego there for me, but it's um it's a differently it's not as selfish. I mean, I get it. I want my kids to be proud of me. You know, but Matt is proud of him. Yeah, Matt is incredibly. That's the thing he can't see, and why I wish they'd played the money up a little bit more. Okay. Yeah. No, I think it would have made a little more sense to me. But you're right. He is. He is not a perfect guy. He's a very complicated character. I still don't care. No, I get it. I still don't care about any of this flashback stuff. I really don't like daddy issues all the time. So this is more of me pointing out this is really well put together daddy issues. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it works for me. Again, my jury's out. I'm going to wait until I see the whole first season. But right now, I'm still really on the fence about the daddy issues. But we'll we'll see how it goes. Um, meanwhile, we have Foggy and Karen having a night on the town, drinking some kind of alcohol with eel in it, which is a choice that people could make. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So, 
Yeah. I like um I like Foggy, although the the singing, oh did you hear that kind of like and he's so um he's so overdone in his quippiness, you know, it almost it feels so performative with him um that it, it got a little tiring after a while, but when they go to the bar and she starts talking. Yeah. And he just listens to her. And he's so kind. And he tries to make her comfortable by talking about the histories of all the guys in the bar to make her feel safer. Yeah. You know? That the city isn't just the surface things that you see. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think it was really, really nice. So, um, so I like all of that. I love the addition of Claire. I think that Claire is fantastic. I love her in this episode. I love the way she's taking care of him, how tough she is, how well she handles herself. Um, she's really, really great. She's mm-hmm. smart and she's capable. And not for a minute do I think if she met Matt on the street, would she not be like, oh, I know who you are. Well, she also so gets like to that. see his face. Um, yes, true. And true, no, true. I, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, not only agree that Claire is more capable than Karen in most every way, but she probably wouldn't recognize him if she had just been concussed and almost killed, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just, I'm defending Karen. Fair enough. Fair enough. For today, because I will not forever defend Karen. I think you make really good points with that. (laughs) Absolutely. I will not belabor that point. Um, But I I think that Claire is a really interesting character. And I was very, very pleased when I looked her up and was like, oh, she's everywhere. She's everywhere. Yes. Yes. To varying degrees, but she always Mm -hmm. shows up. Yeah, I remember her from an episode of, of Jessica Jones, but mm-hmm. she just shows up for like one episode there. Um, but I'm really looking forward to seeing her just everywhere. It's going to be very, very fun. Um, but I do have a question about Claire and about, I think, Matt in general as Daredevil. Um, they got this guy up on the roof. He's hanging. He's been beaten. And she's just all stick a knife in his eyeball and hit this nerve to torture him so much that he'll give you the information that you want. Um, I understand Daredevil is is dark, right? And and we have this claim from Matt that he enjoys it, although I don't really see that in him. But, you know, again, I've only seen the first four episodes. We'll see what happens as we move forward. What the hell is that about? Here's how I read that for Claire. Yes. Claire is fine with some unpleasant things happening to this person because there is a kid at stake. Yeah. I think that she does the big theatrical stab him right here because it will hurt the most ever so that they can stop beating him up. She's hoping that that last bit of terror will push him over the edge so they don't have to do it. Right. But then... Matt goes right in. It might not even be true. I don't know enough about anatomy to know if that's even a real thing. I, it is. I looked it up and it's horrifying. Oh my God. Okay. It's horrifying. Well, it she makes, sold the hell out of it's it. It's one thing that hurts and then your whole face hurts. And I think it may be related to the um, to the freezer headache that you get if you drink something cold too fast. Like, you know oh. how that, like you drink something cold too yeah. fast and then it hurts your head and it hurts your whole face. Um, like, I think it may be related to that, but it's basically, I guess, I guess from, you know, and again, not a doctor. This was five minutes on, on Google. Right. But apparently it is a nerve that if you, if you touch it, it's like hurts your whole face like it's related to everything in your face so 
I can see that being a point of torture. Torture, of course, is um, is a really complicated idea. We seem to feel in this show that it is the best way to get reliable information out of bad guys, um, and they deserve it because they're bad guys. Um, all of that's the- definitely Matt. Yeah, that is Matt. That's a Matt thing. I think, I yes, and is going to continue. But is that going to be called out as bad and faulty? Because he keeps getting good information from these guys. And the fact is, when you're torturing somebody, they will say anything. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So torture as a larger piece is very problematic as a way to gather information. It doesn't actually work in the real world. That's 100%. Um, What they do character-wise, I think you'll see as we go, is that sometimes Matt, often Matt is called out sometimes by himself Mm -hmm. as doing terrible things, but then a good enough result happens that you're like, okay. Well, yeah, because we keep going to it. Like this is a common thing. This is how we get most of our information. And I guess- That's a lateral thinker. I guess you're right. (laughs) Not an investigator because damn, when he can just, you know, stick a knife in somebody's eye and make them tell him stuff. But I do think on the Claire side, that was her trying to avoid any more stuff. I, I Maybe. like, And especially because she says it out loud so that this guy can hear exactly yeah. what the plan is. That maybe she was thinking that he wouldn't do it. And I will say, I looked away. This is what happens. All right. All of these violent things I have not actually seen. All of these like really horrible, <laughs> yes, brutal yes. moments I have not actually seen. What I do is I look away and then I listen to the sound effects, which are probably worse than watching it. So if there was something in Claire that like when she said that, you know, we see surprise that he actually did it, I would have missed it because I don't look. I just listen to the sound effects and the sound effects are horrifying. Um, and it's all deeply, deeply disturbing. So it, so when it comes to these really, really violent moments, there's going to be stuff I don't pick up on because I just I literally cannot cannot watch it. I cannot force myself like it's just a, an instinct. I look away. So um, so it's bad. But we do find out, you know, where the kid is and we have the most amazing fight scene i am not a fan of fight scenes i generally find them incredibly boring i appreciate the choreography and the the acrobatic nature of it um but i get so bored but this fight scene where he goes in we're just in the hallway and he goes into one room and then we see a guy flying out then another guy comes up from the mm-hmm. other room and gets hit in the head with like i don't even know what it was a microwave i'm not sure what it was the kid yeah at that guy. yes it was Amazing. Phil Abraham, who is the director of this episode, is incredible. That scene in and of itself, I'm going to use that scene in my classes. If I ever teach television production, I teach a lot of writing now, so I haven't been teaching television production in a while. Next time I teach television production, I'm using that scene because that is gorgeous. Everything he did is beautiful. Fights and action should tell the story, too. Yes, yes. They are not a break from the story. They should be informing the story. Yes. And this hallway scene is brutal as hell and also has its own internal ebb and flow narrative structure. Yes. That is informed by and informs the larger narrative structure of the episode. Mm -hmm. It's great. It is incredible. I And I'm not surprised you loved it Mm -hmm. because it does that stuff. Like performative violence is just like to look cool. Yeah. What I'm always like, why can't we do both? Just tell a story with the thing that also looks cool. Exactly. And they did that. And it also didn't last forever. Like I mean he went in and took out all these guys and we're just Oh my gosh, it feels longer than it is. Yeah. You know, I mean 
we're hearing it and we're getting a feel. We're, and the thing is, is that the sound effects, and I can tell you this is true because I look away whenever anybody's getting smashed in the brain with a bowling ball or whatever, um, <laughs> that the sound effects, what we hear is so much more powerful than what we see. It really is because it, it creates a space in which the, the viewer's brain has to actually do the work of putting the pieces together rather than having them just play out in front of the eyes, right? So when mm-hmm. you've got that sound, like you are so much more like as a viewer invested in that moment. So to have us just hear, you know, the banging around, the punching, everything that's happening like in the room without actually seeing it. Then the guy comes flying through. The, and I have to say, I laughed. I laughed so hard. He came flying through the thing. The other guy gets hit in the head with a microwave that comes flying out at him. I mean, yeah. it was funny. Matt's working hard. Mm-hmm. Like, he has had a very difficult night. There yeah. is no guarantee he wins this fight. Well, he didn't think he was going to live through it. He was like, if I yeah, live through exactly. it and I come back to get patched up when he said goodbye to Claire. I mean, and his, his you know, his lung collapsed not too long ago. And I was joking when I said, you know, she she opened it up with a Pez dispenser. But, I mean, my God, you know, like, yeah. in, in this This is just what I had in the kit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. it's crazy. So everything that his body has been through, like all of that punishment and there he is and he's able to save that kid. And when he goes into the room, oh, my God, when he goes into the room and he just Takes says, the mask off. I know you're scared, but it's OK. I'm here to help you. Like, I love that. That is the moment that I was just like, you know, like I fell in love with Matt, you know, scars and all torture and all. Yeah. Like it was, it was just so incredibly sweet. And then he comes out carrying that kid and it's, it's just my heart. That whole scene was so brilliantly, brilliantly done. He's so exhausted. We see multiple times that he is leaning against the wall, Mm -hmm. resting while the guy he didn't quite knock out pulls himself together. Yeah. Like he's just leaning against the wall, just like sucking wind, waiting for the guy to come to him. And and um, my son and I boxed yeah. for about a year. Not each other mm-hmm. necessarily, <laughs> although a little. But my boxing coach was uh, herself a fighter, like a professional fighter. Uh-huh. And so the classes were intense. And I have been at the end of those classes where I'm just like throwing this punch and there's nothing in it because my arm is barely being lifted. And, and, um, that's all sold. Like all of that is sold. And then he takes a minute to catch his breath, almost goes into the room, stops, and then pulls the mask up and then goes into the room. And I was like, storytelling. God, it was, it was wonderful. And I mean, when he pulls the mask up, it is this moment of such clearly expressed empathy that he feels, he knows how this kid feels. He knows what this kid is feeling. He's seen him from that kid's perspective. It was yep. so beautifully expressed in just that one little moment. And I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And and I think he says, let's get you back to your dad. Yeah. Which is even more Matt seeing yeah. himself in this kid. Yeah. I've been alone. Mm-hmm. I've been terrified. I've needed my dad to come and save me and he didn't because yeah. he was gone. Mm-hmm. Let's get you back to your dad. Yeah. It's Oof. wonderful. So, you know, for that sequence alone and for everything that's in the, in the present, like I love this episode. I hate the flashbacks. I don't care, whatever. But I mean, I love this episode. I thought it was really, really good. I agree. All right. I like the flashbacks a little bit more than you, but I get it. That's all right. That's all right. Everybody likes flashbacks more than me. I really hate them. <laughs> All right, so moving forward, let's do Rabbit in a Snowstorm. 
In Rabbit in a Snowstorm, we open with an uncommonly brutal murder scene in a bowling alley, and that's all I can say about that scene until I speak to my therapist. Turns out the murderer works for Creepo, and the victim was the guy that Creepo at all have been whining about since day one, and Creepo shows up at Nelson and Murdoch wanting to hire them to defend the murderer. Coincidence? Nope. Matt smells a rat and knows the game is rigged, but he decides to defend the guy anyway because it's an opportunity to find out who Creepo's boss is. After the jury is predictably hung and the charges are dropped, Daredevil questions the murderer and tortures him until he gives up a name, Wilson Fisk. Well, now everything is ruined because these guys are going to kill him, so the murderer impales his own brain on a shard of glass. And frankly, that's disturbing even for Matt. (laughs) Meanwhile, old school reporter Ben Urich, and by old school I mean into journalistic ethics and that kind of thing, wants to follow up on a tip he got about the organized crime game in town, but his boss makes him write fluffy subway line color stories. Luckily, Karen's also into getting the truth or whatever, and she comes to him with the deets about her dirty former employer. Oh, and a weird, vulnerable guy flirts awkwardly with an art gallery manager while staring at white paint on a white canvas, and it's totally Wilson Fisk, the most evil man to be evil since evil was invented. So, hope the art gallery lady has a hideout off the grid in the wilds of Idaho or something, because... This relationship is probably not going to end well for her. Rabbit in a Snowstorm was written by Marco Ramirez and directed by Adam Kane. And it opens with something that is, I guess, kind of supposed to be a fractured tease because we get our 36 hours earlier for two seconds so that we can see that this weirdo guy who just walked into the bowling alley is actually hired by the creepo guy. Um, But then we end up for the rest of the time in this current narrative which I guess is fine. Do we need that quick flashback to him being hired by Creepo? I mean, we could have figured it out, right? I didn't need it. I mean, (laughs) we probably could have just waited until Creepo was collecting the gun and hiring Nelson and Murdoch to let, we would have put the pieces together. Right. And it's fine. I don't get it. Figure it out. So I don't know that whole, and if you ever, like anybody out there who's a writer or who does television or whatever, the, the 36 hours earlier thing is the classic call of the fractured tease, which is a classically weak storytelling device. You think I hate flashbacks? Fractured teases I hate. Fractured teases when we open in, in Medias Rest and then we go back 36 hours earlier to explain how we got here. It's always 36 hours. I don't know why. Um, to explain how we got here. Um, and it's almost always bad. There are very rare exceptions where a fractured tease will work. Um, but this has like the hallmarks of a fractured your tease and then just comes straight back snaps back like a rubber band into the current narrative and moves on it was unnecessary and kind of i don't know um i I, kind of below i think the writing level in in this show because the writing itself and i think for the rest of this episode is actually pretty good i mean what did you think very confident Yeah. yeah i am if anything even less charitable than yourself about the fractured tease okay Because every time I see one, the first thing I thought is, oh, cool, a writer who doesn't know how to start his own story. Exactly. A writer who has no faith in his ability to tell the story well enough. And let me tell you, when you are opening a story with one guy beating another guy's brains out with a bowling ball, like, that's okay. Like, that's where they're opening. That is the actual opening of the story. This isn't in medias rest and then we go back. Like, this is how we're launching this story. That's legit. Why it's almost the opposite of a fracture tease and that we go back to just come back to this moment. Anyway, I don't know. It's just it's 
it was it was bad. It was a really bad moment. If they just edited that out, it would have been fine. And the rest Thankfully, of the episode, it's over very quickly. It's over really quickly, and the rest of the episode is actually pretty strong, right? Very strong. Yeah, yeah I thought so. Yeah, no, I think it's good. Um, so we have, you know, um, the team, of course, uh, whining about how they have no money, which is always fun while they're in the in the place. We have Karen, who's, you know, they've got a client. It's like, oh, a client. You know, she doesn't know how right. to. She's like, oh, I guess I opened the door. Oh, that's what I do because she's never had to do it yet. You know, they've never had one before. Never yeah, it's kind of adorable. One. So it was kind of cute. I like Karen. You know, I like Karen. I like, um, you know, what we're doing in this episode with uh, with Ben. You know, um, with the reporter yeah. guy who's kind of showing up. And I love this opening up, like, with these, uh, you know, with the, the gangster guy that he's talking to. And he's like, you know, time was we used to, you know, kill a guy and we'd send his wife some flowers. Now we just take out the wife with him. And I'm like, oh, days gone by. You yeah. <laughs> cool. Right. But it was yeah, fun. Yeah, I get it's a little bit of a I get this a little bit in Godfather too, where I'm like, oh, remember the wistful days when criminals were honorable? When, no, yes, exactly. <laughs> just less awful. Less awful is not a bar. It just or maybe just awful in a different way. You know, like yeah. I mean, they're they're still they still remain awful. But you know, sometimes we just miss the way it was done in the good old days, and we get a little nostalgic for the murders of yore. But um, <laughs> but I like I like Ben. You know, um, I think that he is he's a really good guy. Um, we have this thing where he's in the hospital, you know, trying to get help from yeah. his wife, which is incredibly sad. But he's with the, the hospital administrator trying to get her to do him a favor. And it isn't until after she does him the favor that he gives her the little cheese blints that she loves. Right. You know, and she yes. says, you should have led with that. And he said that'd be cheating. So we have this sense that like, even, you know, he bought it for her, not because he was going to bribe her, but because he wanted to give it to her, but he didn't want her to feel like, you know, somehow obligated to give him what he wants. So he gets what he wants first and then gives it to her in like the exact polar opposite of a bribe. And I like that we have this guy and this character in this space who is, you know, like he almost seems uncorruptible, you know? I think that is the point of Ben. Yeah. Like he is the the other flavor of noir protagonist. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have generally, broadly speaking, like the one who is touched by the corruption and then uses that against the corruption. You've kind of got that with Matt. Mm -hmm. And I think Ben is the flip of that where it's like Sterling character will not be touched by the corruption. And that winds up being the thing that undermines him. Right. You know, and he is like, he's edgy and he's gritty, you know, but I like him a lot and I love the actor who plays him. He's fantastic. Um, But it's really, it's nice and it's like subtle. Right. And that's why that, that like, terrible i'm not gonna harp on it all day but like that terrible opening like and then we have stuff like this which has this wonderful nuance of delivering character to us so i think it's really yep. good um yeah. so the other thing i noticed in this episode was when um when creepo and i should stop calling creepo when wesley is in the um in the room with matt when he sits down with him and he's going to hire both of them and he's going to give them this big check and I just saw like how he and Matt are these reflections of each other, you know, like he's they've mm-hmm. got the they've got the same general look, you know, the dark hair, the suits, this whole thing. Right. And um, Matt wears, of course, sunglasses. And this guy wears, you know, transparent, regular, you know, glasses. And and it seems like he is the he looks like light. Wesley looks like light, but he's dark. Yeah. And, you know, and Matt looks dark. 
but he's actually like fighting. He's actually the good guy fighting for the real thing. So, um, so I found that kind of interesting and I didn't know if they had deliberately like reflected these characters off of each other. Is Wesley a character in the comics or is he made new for the show? You know what? I meant to look and see. I don't think he's a character from the comics. The reason I assume that is this kind of looks light, but is actually dark, looks dark, but is actually light contrast is usually done with Wilson Fisk. Oh. mm -hmm. I mean, this is another example of Wesley soaking up spotlight he does not deserve. Right. Mm -hmm. I'll admit it's too early to have Fisk and Matt in the same room together. Yeah. But letting Wesley do that instead is not good. Well, and also giving Wesley all this narrative weight. You know, he yeah. has huge amounts of narrative weight throughout the run, you know, of the show so far. It's only been a few episodes. But um, so to give him all of that weight, you know, it just feels like he is the bad guy and Wilson Fisk is the name. He Like if we had found out, like I knew Wilson Fisk was D'Onofrio. So like I knew. But if we had found out that he goes my employer and all this like was a made up thing and it was actually him. Right. Like I would have found that much more interesting. But in reality, he is just working for this guy and just has absolutely no human emotion or whatever. So, um, yeah, so I yeah. don't know. He's, like, he's part of what I'm getting at where it's like, we wait way too long yeah. for, for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it would have been better if it was Fisk because Fisk is the real opposite number to Matt. They're yes. from the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They both feel very strongly about the neighborhood being better. They obviously mm-hmm. have extremely different approaches, except one of Matt's two approaches is not as different from Fisk's. Yeah. As Matt might like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they're the cracked mirror of one another. Not this guy. Right. Anyway. Right. Yeah. So I just for the record, I did look it up in the comics. Apparently Kingpin does have a subordinate named Wesley, but that's all they ever called him. And ugh, exactly. Just why all this time mm-hmm. for Wesley? Yeah. So. I don't know. I don't know why we gave him all that narrative weight. I mean, I, I'm I'm guessing that'll pay off later, but it's not paying off now. It's just really kind of shifting us away from the guy who we really want to talk about, you know, which is Fisk. Um, yeah. But yes. the question- I mean, this is I mentioned that's my one big complaint for season one is that like they wanted to play this mystery game yeah. with Fisk mm-hmm. with us, the viewers, when I was like, don't do it with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do it with Matt. Do it with Matt. Absolutely. But yeah, I want to know what the stakes are. Mm-hmm. Right. And also, I like the idea of him, like, appearing to be a good guy. In no way does Wesley, for a hot second, to anybody, people passing him, a pigeon can fly past him on the street and be like, now there's an asshole. Like, you you can see it. (laughs) It emanates from his being. Nobody believes that he's a decent guy, you know? Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I think that that's, it it just doesn't quite work um, for me. Um, the other thing, and I don't know, this kind of moved really quickly and I was wondering if you picked up on this or if this was something that's, that's, you know, that's, that was obvious. And I just thought it was a little bit, a little bit weird, but you know, we have this guy who is working this woman who's on the jury saying, you know, just whatever, we've got this blackmail on you, you know, yada, yada. And then Matt beats him up in the alley and, you know, wants to, to get the information and and tell him to like, you know, release the, the, whatever he's got on this woman and she's going to get off the jury and all of that stuff um so at like in that moment while this guy's getting beat up he's like there's a light in a building and i get a job and then he's like but there's a light in another building and somebody else gets a job and it reminded me and he said i'm somebody else's job so yeah. like it reminded me of the incentives program that we saw recently in agents of shield right where they have all these people doing these terrible things because they've either got some blackmail on them or they're like holding their loved ones prisoner 
you know, and that that is the incentive program to have this network of people who are kind of pulled into this space of working for you, you know, but like the eyeball, right, in um, in Deadlock. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. So, um, so is that what they're doing here? Is that... Or... I think that they're doing a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Like one is that they are showing how complex mm-hmm. and secretive fisk's criminal enterprise is right mm-hmm. and i think again in this episode specifically the contrast here is with the italian mobster mm-hmm. the old school guy from the beginning yeah. who also went to jail right like he was a known mm-hmm. mobster yes and there's a bunch of not known mobster things going on with wilson fisk so he actually treats his criminal enterprise like a spy organization mm-hmm. like tradecraft mm-hmm. we have uh, interconnected cells, but nobody knows the whole picture, you know, yeah. until you get way higher up the chain. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think that they're doing is it's interesting you bring in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where we have not been sure which side our agents are supposed to be on. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas here in the noir piece, we can say the other thing that Fisk does is just infect yes. this area. Mm-hmm. He draws otherwise good people in with things they did decades ago that don't really matter, mm-hmm. but they regret. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's both. I think it's both the um, next level mm-hmm. of criminal enterprise, but also it's a cancer on Hell's yeah. Kitchen yeah. that goes down to the individual. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I kind of liked it. And I liked how subtle it was, you know, exactly, but yeah. when he goes, I'm yeah. somebody else's job. I was like, ooh, that's really interesting, because then you've got people who are bad guys who are not bad guys. And how do you fight the bad guys if they're they're in this situation where they're doing it because their loved one is being threatened? You know, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's really hard to fight against that. And I kind of liked that. And I was sort of hoping we'd go in that direction. But don't tell me because we'll get there when we get there. Well, yeah. and the fact that the organization is made up of both mm-hmm. makes Matt's right. life more difficult. Mm-hmm. No, I Which think... are you? Yeah. And do I have time to figure it out before you shoot me? No, I better just punch you. But now I feel terrible. Like, exactly. Let me listen hello, to your heartbeat for a minute Matt's first guilt. to tell if you're a good person or a bad person. <laughs> Yeah. Because the heartbeat knows all. Um, Just ask him, are you bad? Listen for the heartbeat. Right. <laughs> Listen for the heartbeat. Um, so we've got Wilson Fisk, right? We see Wilson Fisk for the first time in this uh, kind of um, interesting and, and a little like weird, but sort of charming scene with the art gallery owner, you know, um, yes. where he goes in and he's looking at the, the white paint on a white canvas and she makes the rabbit in a snowstorm joke and as I'm watching this I'm thinking you know she says something people always ask me how we can charge so much for what amounts to gradations of white and I was like is that uh and I actually really like this like the the cost a reference to the cost of innocence that innocence to preserve it is expensive you know, and um, and so I thought that that was really kind of interesting. And then she says, all that matters is how does it make you feel? And he says, it makes me feel alone. So is this white canvas, you know, is, is white representing what it usually does, which is, you know, purity or by extension, innocence, not in a sexual way, but in just a, a, a way where, you know, you can actually still enjoy the world and think that people are good at heart kind of innocence. Um, so is that, did, am I reading too much into that, do you think? You are not reading too much into it, but we are going to have to discuss it later. <gasps> Ooh, that's going to be okay. I'm looking forward to uh, to doing that. But I really liked the way that they did this scene. I like that we open up with this guy in this vulnerable space where he's obviously like, you know, interested in this woman. 
and trying yeah. to flirt with her, but he's not really doing a great job of it. And he's a little bit awkward. And, um, and so it was, it was really interesting to see like who our really evil guy is in this context of vulnerability, that this is how we get introduced to him. Now, had he had that scene been in the first episode, I think I could have enjoyed it a little bit more. I think moving that up a little bit, you know, but I like it here. I like that we open with him in vulnerability. Um, that's what makes us interested in him. And I think that he's a really engaging character. So what did you think of that? Wilson Fisk, comic book wise, yes. is one of the most like nuanced villains. Mm -hmm. He's not really a supervillain. He's a crime boss, but he's a crime boss who is prepared to deal with supervillains. Yes. You know, um, he kind of started out more as a uh, Spider-Man mm -hmm. guy because Spider-Man works at the street level. But again, when we get to that grimmer and grittier mm -hmm. aspect of Daredevil, um, Daredevil needed to fight organized crime, mm -hmm. basically. And that's when a lot of the nuance starts getting added to Wilson Fisk, where he becomes very much an opposite number in a lot of ways to Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that and knowing that we're going to do that in the series is why, yeah, I really wanted him buying way too expensive white canvas art while Matt and Foggy are struggling to open an office. Right. Mm -hmm. I want Matt in dark suits while Wilson is in light suits. Right. That's yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great introduction to him. Um, and it really does set up a lot of that compare and contrast yes. that we're going to have between them. You could literally write this thing as though they are co protagonists yeah who are each other's antagonists mm -hmm. i don't know that's very complicated but no but you, can you could do that yeah yeah you know in this thing where they're both a little bit wrong maybe you know in a 50 50 proposition somebody gets the hyphen let's give that to the guy whose name is on the show right right mm -hmm. but it could almost be that where they are in tension with one another and don't even realize it yeah um, and i think you get how that could have been right here like yeah. it's so bad is very confident with people mm -hmm unearned in a lot of ways like he is well he's confident because he he withholds himself he's not vulnerable yeah you yeah. know and and wilson fisk is vulnerable with this woman in a way that's really interesting he tells her what that painting makes him feel yeah and he is serious and he's that's honest what it makes him feel right. and that is a scary thing it makes me feel alone mm -hmm. what does that i mean and i think again vincent d'onofrio's delivery there's a there's a place somebody could have delivered that that sounded like a line yeah like for this woman, but he delivers it and it's just like, my guts, you are ripping them out. No, it's it, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio plays from this very kind of strange space. He makes choices as an actor that I don't think anybody else would ever make. And it it gives him a sense of of a like genuineness, you know, like mm -hmm. he's awkward and he's weird, but it's genuine. He's not putting on a show for anybody. And I think that he does a fantastic job with this character. Yeah, it's really, he's, that approach is very much the best way to play the Wilson Fisk that they built for this show. Absolutely. I think it's he's really good. Brilliant in it. All right. So that moves us into episode four In the Blood. In In the Blood, the Russian brother contingent of the five families is suffering from Daredevil's ardent attentions. And they don't like it. Wesley tells them that Fisk is going to take over some of the duties they can't do because of one dude in a mask. And that doesn't sit well with their pride or whatever. So they decide to Pulp Fiction their comatose buddy so he can wake up and live just long enough to tell them what he knows about Daredevil. 
Claire calls Matt as she's being kidnapped and he tracks her down to the Russian's taxi company where she's being beaten and tortured for information because torture is an efficient and effective means of getting information and we love it so much. He shuts off the lights and descends upon the Russians like the holy fury of God and then takes Claire back to his house to patch her up. He feels bad for almost getting her killed, but she says she believes in his mission. So he tells her his name is Matthew thus giving her more information for people to beat out of her in future episodes. I mean, I don't know if that happens. I haven't watched ahead, but it seems like a fair bet. Meanwhile, Karen is trying to get Ulrich to investigate the crime. But Ulrich is all, these guys have killed everyone, and you have a shady past, so, webs. He ends up helping her anyway, because apparently no one can stand to see a pretty blonde girl get all killed and whatnot. Wilson Fisk continues his romantic pursuit of the art gallery lady, whose name, Vanessa, will look lovely on the shiny tombstone that surely waits for her at the end of this path. They have a nice date until a bloody Russian busts into the restaurant and begs to take Fisk's offer. Half the men in the restaurant stand up and form a circle around Fisk, and while Vanessa had been charmed by her oddball date up until that point, this is next level weird and she's out. He takes her back to her apartment building and she says she's just not that into him, leaving him alone on on the street. Wesley takes the Russian on a drive and spouts poetic bullshit about the past. Then Fisk pulls the Russian out of the car and expresses his displeasure with being embarrassed in front of his date by beheading him with a limousine door. It appears someone has anger issues. In the Blood was written by Joe Pekaski and directed by Ken Girodi. And wow, this is a really gross episode, Joshua. <laughs> it's pretty rough. It is pretty yes, rough. They just keep getting worse and harder to watch is this going to continue for the rest of season one um i mean a lot of the fight scenes continue to be pretty brutal mm -hmm. but i think i feel like maybe again it's been a minute since i watched it but i think we probably crest the wave with the russians okay all right because beheading a guy be angry with, with me door. if i'm wrong no it's okay <laughs> i'm just saying like i just want to prepare myself because between the the bowling ball and the trigeminal nerve and the beheading somebody with a limousine door like i'm at the point where i'm just a little bit over my <laughs> no it's legitimate it is extremely brutal and i think because matt is so conflicted about his use of violence yeah. as a weapon mm -hmm. is why we make everyone else so violent. Like yeah. we, we don't want to undermine his questioning of use of violence, mm -hmm. but at the same time, we want to make it a little nuanced. So we have to make everybody else even worse. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it works, but good Lord, is it tough to watch? No, I think this is a personal taste kind of thing. You know, um, so I mean, that's fine. Like I just for me, it's a little it's a little rough. It's a little hard. And I keep looking away, which I think is a bad call, but I can't help myself. And then I hear the sound effects and the sound effects are so much worse. They're so much worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really it really is tough. But can I start with what I love? Absolutely. I love Claire. She's I the greatest. Love Claire. I love that she hisses at the cat. She literally is speaking to the cat that she hates in its own language and i think that is just adorable it is an adorable embodiment again of empathy you know um so i love even though it's just this tiny little moment and there she is you know she's allergic to cats but she's taking care of this cat you know for her buddy who's out of town yeah. it's just it was really really nice and i mean i like the flirting too between claire and matt i don't know that that goes anywhere we will see um but i like them as a pair and at any rate like whether they end up getting together romantically or not which i kind of suspect 
they don't because she's so present like everywhere else as well and Luke Cage is the thing so in a town where you got Luke Cage and Matt it's a tough choice I'm just saying um oh I like that you think so but uh, okay yeah <laughs> Um, but Mike I, Holter makes me have interesting feelings. Okay, all right. Well, I will. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll wait and have that discussion again later. Um, but I like that he's around. I like that she's so smart, you know. And I like that he's yeah. around somebody who's smart and he can like be himself with her in a way that he can't be with anybody else, not even Foggy, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's really nice. But then of course we um, we super damsel her. You know, get her kidnapped and beaten up. And I'm just like, it's like an Oprah episode where what's under your seat is trauma. Girls, (laughs) look under your seat. You get trauma. You get a beating. You get trauma. (laughs) Right, exactly. So, you know, Claire is completely traumatized. And again, I don't know if this is a trauma fridging. We'll see what happens if we actually, you know, have the, um, you know, the ramifications of this experience show up in her character later. Um, But she is kick ass. She's so strong. She's so smart. She is fighting those guys, even as they're pulling her yes. out of the um, out of the back of the trunk. Um, I God, I like her. She's so great. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I mean, I I gushed at the beginning already again. So yeah, yeah but she really is great. I d- I did not love the flirting between <laughs> her and Matt. Okay. All right. Um, well, no. Let me re- let me rephrase. At the time that I watched this, I was much more concerned than I grew to be that they would become an item. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't love it. And part of the reason I don't love it is because, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Matt loves Daredevil. Right. Matt don't love nobody like he loves Daredevil. (laughs) He will ruin every relationship with everyone in the world. Oh, yeah. As long as he gets to be Daredevil. Well, and he's also going to, like, anybody around him is in danger all the time. Like, you know, Absolutely. he's constantly he in danger. He is bad at secret identities. Yes. No, he's really bad at it. But um, but I, I did like them. I thought it was a good... And you know me, no, I No, the scene everything. is wonderful. I but everything. as I was watching it, I was like, mm-mm, that's yeah. a way to danger, Claire. He's, yeah. He loves Daredevil more than you. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so we've got these Russians, and honestly, the Russians are like the least interesting... The, the, the bulk of this episode, you know, it's it's their thing, and they go and they pulp fiction their buddy and, and bring him, you know, out of this coma and basically kill him. He <laughs> dies yeah. moments after telling them about Claire. Um, you know, and they're in this position where you know they're screwing everything up and of course Wesley comes in and says I mean if he had an iron suit or a magic hammer maybe that would explain why you guys keep getting your asses handed to you which I really liked as a line I thought that that was great you know he comes in he makes them an offer that he says is an offer it's not an order but it's clearly an order you know um all of it Uh, yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, but I don't he's care. delivering that in a very specific way. Right. You know, like, yeah. I'm not interested in the Russian brothers. I mean, I, there's just nothing about them that I find that interesting. Yes, they, they took their friend and they made weapons out of his rib bones. You know, great. That's edgy, whatever. But I'm like, I'm just not interested in them at all. And I don't know. Did you have a response to the to the Russian brothers? I think that they work. OK, I can I can talk about this in video game terms. Sure. Mm-hmm. They work as really good, like, first-level bosses. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, they are the most straightforward in that they are the most brutal and human trafficking. I mean, I don't want to start, like, gradating crimes. Right. But it's so overtly and personally destructive and awful. And evil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That they really work as the first group 
that we have to go through. Sure. And because Mm -hmm. once upon a time, my wife and I got really interested in the Russian mob. We read some books. Oh, yeah. And so I kind of like that they took the time to show how brutal being Uh in the Russian mob could be. Except, who cares? Right. So... It's tough. I'm in a tough yeah. space with them. Yeah. No, I just didn't. I didn't find them interesting. I found like so many of the other things that were happening, like in this episode, really interesting. Like I like Wilson Fisk, you yes. know, like him awkwardly asking this woman out. This whole line with the woman that can be bought isn't worth having, you know, which mm-hmm. is a little bit. I mean, it's got that possessive language to it. Which is a little weird, you know, um, but yeah, he's he's just he's interesting and he's so weird and awkward on the date, you know, with this woman um, whose future, I think, is probably not so bright. Um, I imagine she's just kind of like run across this guy who's who's going to be bad news, I suspect. Um, I like his. You vulnerability. can't see me not making eye contact with you. OK. All right. I know. I know. How I don't that have felt. anything to say on this whenever subject you would say stage. stuff on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I had to do the same thing. <laughs> You know, just sit there and whistle and just be like, no, 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 no. Um, so I don't know. Like, I imagine it's going to turn out badly for her. Um, but we we go like she is wearing white, you know, and he is wearing mm-hmm. black. Like we have them in these oppositional colors. So she is uh, she doesn't seem terribly innocent to me. Like she looks like she's got an edge to her. Um, and I like that. You know, she's smart and, and a little bit edgy. But like, is she like, and I don't know, again, maybe I'm reading too much into that. But of course, he is darkness and she is light. She is innocence and purity and he is corruption and evil. Um, and I just feel like we're getting that, um, you know, that kind of dichotomy there playing off I of think, this whole scene. I think in this scene, in this mm-hmm. episode, I think the dichotomy that they represent mm-hmm is actually she's kind of more worldly yeah and he is much more parochial aha uh-huh. okay I, I mean she says something about this the the changes to the city scrubbing off the character and he's like i'm gonna guess you didn't live here right you know you're new <laughs> right. and and so she doesn't know the city but she knows the world yes but that puts her in a place where she can't understand Hell's Kitchen as well as someone who was from there and who also grew up on a farm. So right. mm-hmm. I think in in this particular instance, it's less their their contrast is definitely there. Yeah. But it's much more this worldly cultured. Wesley had to tell him what wine to order. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, she would have been able to order the wine without help. Yeah. Okay. Because I don't read her as innocence or purity or any no. of that. But white is so strongly associated with that. And I associated that in the um, in the rabbit in the snowstorm, you know, painting. Yeah. So I was just I was kind of wondering, I'm like, is this a deliberate thing or what are they going for here? And I didn't quite I didn't feel like it really matched. But that makes sense. They are I think opposites. The, the color contrast yeah. is mm-hmm. a little bit of a smokescreen because mm-hmm. we're because we just got done talking about the painting, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's our context for for these people. Mm-hmm. Although, remember, I mean, we will come back to it. But remember what he said: white makes me feel alone. Yeah. So he doesn't wear white. Yeah. He wears black. That's his power color. Mm-hmm. And the woman he's interested in is just ensconced in the color that makes him feel alone. Well, guess what? (laughs) He's really bad at this. (laughs) Like, he's pulling it together because he's so compelling. But, I mean, on any, you know, objective metric, he is not doing well on this date. Like, interpersonally, he's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. Um, And so, there she is, dressed in white, making him feel more alone, Mm -hmm. I think is probably where we're headed in this episode yeah no i think so but it was really really interesting um which brings us to wesley 
right? Um, Must we? Oh, yeah. Well, no, there is one thing, though, that I kind of want to, like, talk about. Sure. No, Leslie. I'm sorry. I'm snarky. You have a real thing. Please no, go. I, well, no, it's it, they, he does this, like, weird poetic run. They say the past is etched in stone, but it isn't. It's smoke trapped in a closed room, swirling, changing, buffeted by the passing of years of wishful thinking. But even though our perception of it changes, one thing remains constant. The past can never be completely erased. It lingers like the scent of burning wood. And my first thought on this was, oh, he's got the heart of a poet in a cigar box under his bed. <laughs> yeah. But yes. I mean, what is up with that whole run? Is this a thing that we're going to be getting with Wesley, where before somebody is beheaded with a limousine door, he runs on this poetic expression at them? Is this part of his character or is it just a weird one-off in this episode? Oh man, I don't, I don't remember <laughs> mm-hmm. getting a lot of it. Yeah, like in, that's this overt. It's I mean, weird. I think, I think there's something happening here. Yeah, that is uh, more hard boiled than mm-hmm. noir. Yeah, but noir has its roots, you know, in hard boiled sure. fiction. So mm-hmm. it's you know, there's a lineage where we say very brutal truths in very poetic ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so that's an interesting stylistic choice that I don't like, but. Let me posit you a scenario. Yes. Can you imagine if Wilson Fisk had said all of that? Oh, and then it. beat him to death and beheaded him? I would have loved it. But said it in the same super calm. Right. But Wilson Fisky way. Deliver it just yes. like Wes- Wesley would, mm-hmm. but with, yeah, a little bit of Fisk edge mm-hmm. and then flip shit. Yes. That would Why are we spending so much time on Wesley? I will try not to say that so much in the next episode. I know. I think I think maybe we can just have that on a loop, you know? Yes. Episode, yeah, like, yeah. Because that would have been Wesley? so much more powerful. Yes. I know. I know. Yeah. It's so, it's so incredibly good. But now here we are, like, at the end of this whole run. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, the noir element to this. I mean, obviously... It's very dark. We've got this, you know, uh, corrupted hero in a corrupt mm-hmm. city full of corruption, right? Trying to protect and preserve. I mean, innocence is often, you know, the the antithesis. And we are working with a lot of these antithetical, the black and the white and the evil sophisticate and all these antithetical models, right? Yes. So, I mean, innocence is often the antithesis to corruption, right? Which is what we, we find in a noir. But I'm, I don't know that I'm really buying that he's protecting innocence. But I'm not sure, like, what it is. Like, what is this thing that he is so, like, he's... He- so this is not something I buy into. Right. Um, but I don't think from a literary criticism standpoint... Innocent, I guess, in that way, you know? Yes. I think it's a much more specific innocence mm-hmm. in that way, yeah. That they haven't done anything bad and they don't deserve these things to happen to them so it's really about um you know about the justice of it i guess about the fairness the unfairness of the victims you know that they shouldn't Mm -hmm. have to be victims so he's going and protecting that um and so matt his his he is essentially corrupted not by his blindness right because that's just a a physical characteristic right i I mean you know, if we're doing literary criticism, yeah. and this is extremely ableist, mm-hmm. but I think we can't neglect the idea that him being blinded, having started out as a sighted person and then is blinded, that he is, for the purposes of the criticism, lessened in some right. way or broken. Mm-hmm. You know, he had an ability, that ability is gone forever. 
other things showed up to make up for it. But he specifically says in one of the episodes, I would trade it all to see the sun again. Right, right. That he wants to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that's in there. I think that's in there with the blindness. Okay. No, I think that's really interesting. And I mean, the thing is that like. I'm trying to kind of wrap it, like wrap it into something that I can understand, like what it is mm-hmm. that specifically the themes of this particular noir is, you know. So, um, so I don't know that he's corrupted by his blind, but he he got blind. He was blinded in by a heroic act, choice uh, in an act of heroism, exactly. Yes. So that there's a cost for being the hero. I think is something that we're we're seeing that when you yes, do the definitely. right thing. You know, when you're the hero, that you pay the price for that, and that he's willing to pay that price so that innocent people don't need to suffer, and that that's what he's trying to do is he's trying to like prevent the kind of suffering maybe that he had as a kid. You know, his dad did not necessarily the right thing, but did you know, but was honest at least. He he yes. you know, legitimately beat Creel, right? And he was honest for once, and that's what got him killed. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, that there does seem to be like a a cost for doing the right thing that you're going to pay for it, but he's going to pay that cost so that nobody else has to. Right. I mean, is that what you see there? Yes. And mm-hmm. I think that there is another element that will become more clear as mm-hmm. we go. But you're okay. seeing bits of it with the guilt and the torment and the confession. OK. Mm-hmm. Not only is Matt willing to pay it, he is eager to pay it yeah. because he thinks he deserves punishment. All right. And that's another thing he says to Claire. And I mean, the thing is, when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. Right. Uh You know, I mean, but he says to Claire, I enjoy it. But I don't see enjoyment in anything that he's doing. You keep talking about how he loves Daredevil. and like, I believe you, you know, but I'm not seeing that. What am I missing in these episodes? You are missing. I don't think you're missing it in these episodes. Okay. I think we are going to get a wider view of Matt Murdock. Like, mm-hmm. um, one of the reasons that the daddy issues with Jack offend me less yeah. is that we, as I mentioned, we do get another father figure, right? Mm-hmm. And even both of those are not the only or sole reason that Matt is who he is. Yes. They're they're bricks in the wall, but mm-hmm. they're not the only thing. And we are going to see more and more reasons that Matt feels that he is not inherently good. Okay. Or if not that far, he believes he deserves punishment. And if he can allow himself to be punished while also punishing even worse people, yeah. this is the best of all possible worlds for him. All right. Okay. Well, because, I think it's going to be interesting think to see about that this. evolve. He could cleanly help people as an attorney. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Again, he hears other people suffering, and that is very difficult, and he's very sure. physically capable, and there's a lot of reasons that he kind of could fall, would fall from that precipice. But he right. could cleanly help people in ways that his dad needed as an attorney. Right. But he chooses to compromise his own ethics, his own body, mm-hmm. his, yeah, his morality yeah. in order for him to punish others and also be punished. Right. It is like a noir or a Boros. That is interesting. But I don't, is it about punishment though? Because it's, he doesn't go after people for what they did. He goes after them to stop what they're doing. Right. So he is trying to like, does he go, he does, I don't see him going after people for vengeance. 
doling not out vengeance punishment. per se because it's not personal. Well, and he's also interrupting them in the bad act. Like he, it's not like somebody's out at dinner having a perfectly lovely time with their kids, and he's grabbing oh, that's true. them, beating the hell out of them. He's stopping them in the act of hurting. Like he seems focused on protection. Yeah, you know, yeah. rather than punishment. Um, I think for Matt Murdock, you cannot separate these two things. Okay, all right, because. One thing Claire mentions is how badly beaten everybody yeah. Yeah, that comes into true. her hospital is. Like everyone true. he dealt with, all the bad guys are just beaten to hell and gone. Right. You don't have to stab somebody in the trigeminal nerve, right? <laughs> well, oh, or notice in the in the hallway, mm-hmm. there are at least two or three times mm-hmm. that he could have broken somebody's arm or leg and yeah. taken them out of the fight. Yeah. And he doesn't. He hurts them, and then they get back up, and he punches them some more. Right. So he now, I don't think damage. that's a conscious choice because mm-hmm. he's there to save that kid. But, I mean, if we're looking for all of the elements of yeah. he wants to beat them more. I think it's an interesting question. Um, yeah. And I'm really I'm interested in seeing that evolve. Um, one of the things, though, that I'm worried about, though, is Foggy. Like, here Foggy is... Just basically this fluffy ball of vulnerability who means yeah. so much to Matt. Like, that is a recipe for him getting seriously hurt, like, yes. a lot. And so, like, I'm just saying I'm very worried. Like, when he and um, and Karen were walking down the street and he was like, we're in the city and we're safe and it's fine and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh my I was God. like, oh, yeah. you're, gonna, you're totally going to get killed, Foggy. Like, something <laughs> terrible is going to happen to you over and over and over again. I won't go into details, Mm -hmm. but in kind of the way that we discussed that Fisk is a cancer to Hell's Kitchen, like he is a blight upon it, even at the most personal level, Mm -hmm. everybody who cares about Matt, he becomes that to them. Ooh. Oh, God. It it is is not good good to be in Matt's orbit. No, this is so good. I'm really enjoying this show. Okay, one last question for you. Yes. Is Matt a mystery man? Or is he a superhero? Yeah. So this is really an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Of the Netflix shows that I have seen, mm-hmm. Daredevil goes the hardest in the paint for actual superhero trappings. Yes. He His costume is not great mm-hmm. right now, but he does have one. He yeah. changes identities yes. to go do these things. I think at this level, it's a tough call. He exists in a superhero universe mm-hmm. compared to his... Netflix compatriots, he goes the hardest for superhero stuff. Uh-huh. I think that he rides that line but tips over into superhero. Okay. No, it's interesting. Now, one reason comic book Daredevil is 100% superhero is because he gets mixed up in this ridiculous over-the-top nonsense. Yeah. Now, we will get to ridiculous over-the-top nonsense with the Netflix people. <laughs> Defenders is coming, friends. Right? So I think the thing that pushes Matt Murdock over the edge from mystery man to superhero is, in fact, the dual identity that also involves a superhero costume. Okay. All right. So when you look at mystery men like the shadow or the spider, they did wear different clothes. So they had distinctive manners of dressing, but they did not go full costume. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. And... Especially with those two examples, their alter egos were not that alter. Uh-huh. Okay. They they were there was no not any real conflict of identity. Whereas here we have a very stark conflict and identity in Matt between daytime Matt and nighttime Matt. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that, that is typified by a changing outfit. Okay. I like I that. I think that's he's a he's a noir superhero. 
So we we ratchet it down to a certain level because of the noirness. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. but he is nevertheless a superhero. Interesting. Well, for anybody who wants a little bit more on the differences between a mystery man and a superhero, you can reference uh, episode number 11 of Still Dead, Gross Face Killer, in which Joshua Unruh guest uh, hosts on that show where we talk about Angel and does this whole run about superheroes versus mystery men. It's very interesting, and I highly, highly recommend it because Unruh is brilliant and we really enjoyed having him on the show. We will definitely be dragging him back in, I'm sure, again at some later date. Um, (laughs) All right, so Joshua, tell me, of these first four episodes of Daredevil, what's your favorite part? So you stole my favorite part, and that's fine. (laughs) We'll get to you. But a very close second was Wilson's Evening with Vanessa. There is so much going on there. Just a lot of character things that are going to be interest that are interesting now, but will pay off bigger later. Yeah. And the way that it's broken up by his criminal life intruding onto his personal life. Mm-hmm. Wilson Fisk also has identity issues. You know, mm. um, I loved I loved all of that. And and um, you bringing out their dichotomy and us really kind of nailing that to cultured versus parochial yeah. just makes it even better for me. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool. I'm really enjoying that relationship. Well, I will, you know, cop to stealing your favorite part, which I didn't realize I was stealing at the time, but I wrote the script first. So <laughs> I got it. The you hallway, win. That's right. right. Yeah. The hallway I shouldn't fight. say stole. I should say beat me to I it. I beat you to it. Absolutely. Which is unusual because usually I am the last person doing the script in the five minutes before we do the show, but I got to it early this week. I'm very proud of myself. The hallway fight with the Russians. I love that whole thing. I thought it was brilliantly done, beautifully expressed, funny and horrifying and everything at the same time. I absolutely loved it. And I just cannot shout about enough about how great that is. I think I've cracked the code for you in action scenes. Yes. Is that when they take the time to actually make them a story unto themselves, yes. then you are pleased. I will be you know. I will be in for that. But I get bored with the extended action sequences, especially in Marvel, that's a thing. We have these really extended action sequences and I'm usually just completely bored by them, waiting for the story to pick back up. But that was Fantastic. And I look forward to seeing director Phil, Phil Abraham, uh, you know, at the helm again in this show. Um, hopefully he will be. I haven't checked to see, but it was it was really well done. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Diane Rich and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up a holes. Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you, you wise individuals who think next time you should skip the part with the eel. (laughs) You can show your support by chipping in a dollar a month or more to either of our Patreons, or by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which is kind of like the Wilson Fisk of podcast distribution models. If we don't get enough five-star reviews, they're going to behead us with a limousine door. So... Go write those reviews. (laughs) Yes, the links to Apple Podcasts and both our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in your show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Daredevil Season 1, Episodes 5 through 7. Until then, if you had an iron suit or a magic hammer, maybe that would explain why you keep getting your asses handed to you.